Welcome to the program podcast. The program is a team building and leadership development company that works with more than 160 collegiate and professional athletic teams and corporations throughout North America annually. And I'm Eric Kapitulik, the founder and CEO of it. The program believes that talent allows us to do well in life. It allows us to win games. But a commitment to getting that much better, if you put your thumb and forefinger two inches apart, that much better allows us to compete for championships on whatever our chosen battlefield may be. We get that much better by being great teammates and great team leaders. The program podcast will help you be both for our families, our athletic teams, our schools, our companies, and for all the teams with whom we are privileged to be a part. Joining me today to help us become the best teammates and the best team leaders that we can be is Jessica Leahy. Jessica is a teacher, a writer, and a mom. Over 20 years, she's taught every grade from sixth to 12th grade in both public and private schools. She writes about education, parenting, and child welfare for The Atlantic, Vermont Public Radio, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. She is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, The Gift of Failure, how the best parents learn to let go so their children can succeed. She is a member of the Amazon Studios Thought Leaderboard and wrote the educational curriculum for Amazon Kids, The Stinky and Dirty Show. Jessica earned a BA in comparative literature from the University of Massachusetts and a JD with a concentration in juvenile and education law from the University of North Carolina School of Law. She lives in Vermont with her husband and two sons. Her second book, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence will be released in April, 2021. Jessica, Welcome to the program podcast. I really appreciate you're making the time to spend with me and us this morning. Absolutely. I'm really excited to be here. I'm so excited for your second book to be released <laughs> after reading your first. And when it is, I'd love to have you back with us to discuss it. Absolutely. But, to but today I am fired up to discuss your first book, as we previously mentioned, The Gift of Failure. Jessica, of all the titles I have held in my life, none is more meaningful to me than dad. And although you highlight the influence of parents on their children extensively in the gift, in the gift of failure, there are powerful lessons, techniques, and takeaways for any teacher, coach, and or business executive, for any leader. Now, for our audience, Jessica and I aren't going to get through more than the first few pages of The Gift of Failure, and I can't recommend it strongly enough so that you can read it in its entirety. Jessica, in an effort to hopefully get through even the first few pages and possibly also to those topics that you feel most strongly about, let's attack this. All right, let's do it. First, as a reader of The Gift of Failure, I can feel your passion about this subject on every page. What initially was your inspiration 
to, to write this book? Initially, you know, my enthusiasm for the subject really comes from the fact that I have this incredible enthusiasm for teenagers, especially, well, kids in general, but really for teenagers. And there's something, you know, at the time I was teaching middle school and middle school to me is simply where it's at in terms of my, where my heart lies. I just, I love middle school age kids. Um, for international listeners, that's really kids between uh, in the U.S. sort of grades six and eight, sometimes nine. So sort of 12 to 14. I just love that age. And, you know, what I was concerned with when I was teaching in middle school was that one of the parts of being a teacher is that you can't just jump on every learning opportunity. Like when a kid screws up, you can't jump on every single time they screw up. There's sort of a, as a parent, you know this, there's this process of sort of having the right moment where they're receptive to learning and the conditions are right. And sort of, you know, you don't jump on this, um, like a bad example of something that they've done wrong. You jump on just the right example of when they've done something wrong and they're receptive to hearing, you know, how to do better. And Increasingly, those opportunities were being hijacked by parents who were rescuing their kids from the consequences. Either, you know, if homework got left at home, suddenly the parent would show up with the homework and, you know, just when I'm about to have a conversation about it or, you know, all of that kind of stuff or parents doing their kids' homework, parents, you know, just rescuing their kids from all kinds of stuff. And I was getting increasingly angry, I guess. It's true. I mean, I was on a really high horse about this. Um, which is a bad place to be because education, we know for a fact works best when homeschool relationships are strong. Mm -hmm. And um, so fortunately, I guess, I guess it was fortunate for me. I realized about the same time I was sort of at peak pissed off at the parents of my students. Um, I realized I was doing the exact same thing to my own kids. And so at that point, I'm not only like having to figure out how this, uh, the evidence on sort of what helicopter parenting or directive parenting or over parenting, whatever it is you want to call it, how that affects kids' motivation, how it affects them emotionally, how it affects their learning, how it affects how what they become as adults. And I had seen some research on that, but there were sort of various areas like the learning piece that really need to be, I needed to figure out what impact that was having on learning. And so my enthusiasm really is for the kids. It, it is for my own kids and for my students. And, uh, and, you know, I really hope, you know, as I go out there in the world and do a lot of speaking, and um, I hope that I'm changing things for them so that they can be heard and seen and known for who they are. And, and that's the most important thing to me. Well, Jessica, for what it's worth, reading your book, and I had read your book a, a year ago, mm -hmm. and then I reread it in preparation for our conversation here today. And I can't speak for everybody else, but I'll say this, reading your book made me a better father. And we'll Aww. talk about why specifically, I'll tell you the specific incident uh, here just in the past week. So it well, made a difference. Writing it made me a better parent, I think, and I know it made me a better teacher too. So that's that's been a huge change for me, especially since the kids I started teaching once right after the book came out, which I'm happy to talk about, were particularly difficult kids to teach. I taught for five years in an inpatient drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents. Mm. So kids who really were not that interested in being in my classroom, um, I had to learn a lot of I had to learn how to engage kids who don't necessarily want to be engaged in their mm -hmm. learning. And so it really tested a lot of what I talk about in the book, because it's really easy to parent and teach 
highly compliant children. And it's not as easy. Um, you got to really have a deep bag of tricks, a very large bag of tricks when you're teaching kids who aren't interested in being compliant, aren't trusting, aren't um, aren't trusting for very good reasons, by the way, because, mm -hmm. you know, every adult in their life pretty much has, you know, has uh, has not come through for them. So it made a huge difference in my teaching and in my parents, so parenting. So I'm really glad to hear it made a difference in yours as well. It did. And I appreciate uh, you saying that. And I, and my wife and I might leverage your knowledge about that because we're <laughs> right now going through foster care yeah. parenting training. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, Jessica, you mentioned, and it really stood out to me, talking about as you thought about writing the book, and it, and it, I was like, wow, when you said, I began to feel a creeping sense of unease, a suspicion that something was rotten <laughs> in the state of my parenting. Uh, you that idea, Jessica, as you mentioned, and as you wrote about, about that we've taught our kids to fear failure. And in doing so, we've blocked the surest and clearest path to their success. There's a couple things there that I'd love to talk to you about. One is, I think that as parents, we need to take a step back and self-reflect on what it means to be a success and to have a successful life. How do you define it? What does a successful life look like to you? A successful life looks to me, I mean, a successful life looks very different depending on how you're coming at it. Um, these days because there is a deep, a large gap between kids who grow up and just have to um, do what they need to stay adrift alive get along um, you know keep a roof over their heads that kind of thing and kids who get to pick and choose because they have the safety net the you know the where the privilege the you know all that sort of stuff the support to you know pick and choose the things and you know have a job they love i mean i'm very very fortunate in that i consider you know the life that i get to lead is extremely successful for me because i never think oh i have to go to work now because i get to do the things that i love and i'm extremely fortunate and i've worked really hard for that but it was also you know i came at that from a place where i had a very solid safety net so it really you know i have i hate to say it depends but it really depends on you know when i when i'm talking about my students for example at the rehab for them, a successful life means obviously that they stay sober, that they get to do something that they find fulfilling in their life, that they get to, they feel like they have some sort of what's called self-efficacy in their lives, which is mm -hmm. this feeling that you, um, that if you make a decision or take an action, that it will lead to a, a change in your life. And, and that feeling of self-efficacy with a lot of kids um, is just absent. And I'm not just talking about poor kids or kids who have been in traumatic, uh, child, who have had a traumatic childhood. I'm talking about a lot of kids these days whose choices are being taken away from them. Um, it may look like they have a lot of choices because they have wealth or privilege or whatever. But anyway, generally speaking, a successful life is a life in which you feel fulfilled by what you do, whether that's work, whether that's play, whether that's sort of your 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 side gig, um, and you 
get to wake up with a sense of purpose. I mean, that sense of purpose, I think, is one of the most important things that a kid can have, that a human being can have. And without a sense of purpose, um, we are adrift. So I would say purpose, hope, and a sense of self-efficacy. I think those things, if you've got those things going for you, um, then those three things are what lead you to a place of a successful life. And, you know, people define success differently. And uh, I, you'll note, I don't talk about, you know, economics, but that's a really important part of what success means for a lot of people because it, uh, economics, economic security means safety and economic security means mental health and economic security actually um, means a better lifetime physical health outcome. So I don't mean to be crass and ignore those things because I have the privilege to ignore the question of economics. But I think when it comes down to it for kids, you know, self-efficacy and a sense of hope and a sense of purpose really are the three things that if you wake up with those things in the morning, then you're you're probably leading a fairly successful existence. Well, and your the the point about the economic um, piece of that, what you highlight in the book, in which speaks to to me is that economic piece of it ends up being a byproduct of having purpose, hope, and self-efficacy. That then if the, the better we are at building those, then the economic benefits, if that's what you want, that'll make you happy mm-hmm. or whatever that, that which is that which you want, that it just becomes a byproduct of those behaviors that we're trying uh, to well, instill. not for not for everyone. I mean, I think if we, you know, I'm very fortunate in that for me it does. Um, but it doesn't, you know, that that do what you love and you'll be successful line works, you know, for people, for some people, and not for everyone. And I think it's a really it's not fair to tell all children that if they simply do what they love, that they will be successful. Or if they do, if they have purpose, if they have self-efficacy, if they have a sense of hope that things are going to be fine, because that's just disingenuous for kids who are really struggling. I, I don't think that's fair to say to all kids. For, okay, t- talk about more about that then. I, oh, I'd I'm love to hear about, more about I that mean, then. This comes down to a conversation about privilege and race and all that sort of stuff. I mean, if you have a kid who, you know, who just, you know, you were talking about foster care. I mean, I, I have taught a ton of kids in foster care. I've written extensively about foster care. Kids in foster care, um, they, they tend to move three to four times during their high school, um, the span of high school, and they lose about six months of academic progress with each move. And for kids in foster care to tell them that, you know, everything's going to be bright and sunny and wonderful if they do what they love. um, And yet they are losing academic ground and they tend to be um, at at greater danger of their, for their physical selves. They tend to have be economically tenuous. And then you look at the fact that in this country, we end foster care, generally speaking at 18, when we should be extending it to 21, you know, a kid finishes with foster care at 18 and then we're like, okay, go out into the world, make it. And many kids can't just go out and do what they love and be expected to make it. However, on the flip side, I don't think you can be truly 
fulfilled and successful if you don't love what you do. So I do agree with you on the flip side that, you know, people who are truly successful at what they do are not in it for the short term incentives or the cash or the, you know, the promotion. They're in it because of the sake of the thing itself, that whole Mihai Csikszentmihalyi flow concept that, you know, when things are the right difficulty and we love what we do, we'll get into that flow state and we'll learn at a greater rate and all that sort of stuff. But again, it would be disingenuous for me to tell my, um, my student in my classroom who is a minority, who is uh, growing up in poverty, who is abused at home, that if she simply just keeps doing what she loves, that she will be successful. I, I think that's not fair to do to kids. I, I, I could not agree more, and, and let me be clear, is, and, and that's what one of the things about the book that I love, which is it, it is not parents focus too much on what you do mm -hmm. rather than who you are. Right, right. No, absolutely. And, and, and I see that over and over again when I'm out talking to kids in schools. Right. And so the my earlier statement has nothing, when I talk about uh, do what you mm -hmm. love, I don't know if I said do what you love, but, mm -hmm. but I think love, that was me. <laughs> love, love who you are. Right. And, oh, absolutely. And, and, and what does that mean, regardless of economic background or the what you have or what you don't mm -hmm. have? Right. Let's let's stay focused on yeah. developing the child rather than I think you use the term the altar of staying focused on the altar of achievement. Yeah. I also um, talk about loving the kid you have and not the kid you wish you had. And, and that's, I think, a really important component of this as well. But you're absolutely correct. Yeah. Now let's talk about then if that's success, then let's talk about the flip side of that of failure. And, mm -hmm. and here's the thing where I appreciate that in the gift of failure, you, uh, you use the term failure throughout the book. I mean, that's the title of your book. I mean, it's, it's you're going to keep saying it, right? And my thing is, is that I think first and foremost, we have as parents, as leaders, as a coach, as as teachers, I mean, in, in, in positions of authority with people who, who either live with you, work for you, that you're raising, that you're doing whatever, is to clearly define that what failure is and that I think too often, and you know, you talk about setbacks and mistakes, mm -hmm. and that's I, my thing about reading the book is that none of those things. And I talk to my son about it all the time. Again, my daughter's three and a half, and I can barely mm -hmm. get her to sit down right in for thirty <laughs> seconds long enough. But the, but the thing is, is that boy, mistakes, setbacks, struggle, none of those things are even close to failure for me. Right. Th th those are, wow, what great opportunities those are for me. And, and that's for my what wife. I want. That's what I want from parents is that sort of response. And, un but unfortunately that's not the response that tends, that I tend to see. And I would agree in, in, as a coach and as a business leader, et cetera, in, in having young children who then I, I'm coaching these youth sports as well. And we'll get into sports here because I love some of the things you talk mm -hmm. about with it is that I agree wholeheartedly. I don't see that very much. It's always about, well, that was a great goal that you scored. Hey, mm -hmm. go get A's. Right. So for you, knowing what success is, what do you look, how do you, would? how would you define failure? 
Oh, how do I define failure? Well, failure, I, I, the tricky thing about the word failure is, you know, it's in the title of the book, not because I want kids to fail, but I want them to have a positive adaptive response to failure. And speaking of which, um, I'm going to mention, a, I'll likely mention a ton of books during this interview. And um, if you go to jessicalahey.com under speaking, there's a big button that says download speaking bibliography and all the books I'm going to talk about are there. But a book I love is Tim Harford's Adapt. And he's a business guy. And he talks a lot about the fact that it's not, you are going to make mistakes, you are going to fail, you are going to have missteps, but it's how you respond to those that will ultimately decide. And how you, whether you blame it on someone else, whether you take responsibility for it, whether you're able to look at it and, and take it apart and decide what to leave behind and what to take with you, that will determine your ultimate success. So failure for me has to do with the mindset around how you view those missteps. If failure, and I use that word you know, we didn't use that word lightly. We were really afraid of putting that word in the title because I don't, I don't view, I mean, I'm a teacher. For me, all of those moments when a kid answers a question wrong in my classroom is opportunity, not only for the kid to more fully understand whatever it is we're talking about, but for me to more fully understand how that kid's brain works and why he or she is coming to the wrong answer and how I can help. And in subjects like math, if a child gets at a right answer, but using the wrong process that will then screw them up later, um, a math teacher has to be able to look at that and say, you know, that is really ingenious thinking. And yes, you have come up with the correct answer, but your thinking is flawed. And let's talk about that. And a lot of kids are like, well, I don't care. I came up with the right answer. I succeeded. I'm right. Um, but the thinking behind that right answer may not serve them going forward. So we have to expand a little bit our image of what it means to fail. And, and in sports, when you talk about, you know, second place, lots of people will say, well, second place is losing. That's, you know, second place is, is a loss. And that mindset of viewing a mistake, a setback, an F as a failure is a major problem. It's a major problem in education. It's a problem in parenting. And the good news for me, I'm this eternal optimist. The good news in education is that is shifting. And the way we evaluate kids learning is shifting away from these ABCDF grading or, you know, uh, these measures of, of what I'm putting learning in quotes because tests and quizzes and things like that, depending on how you use them, either are or are not a great measure of learning or a great instrument for learning. But for example, when we moved here to the town we live in, in Vermont, we chose our kids' school based on the fact they don't give A through F grades. They do something called standards-based assessment, which is here are the skills we expect kids to know in this semester of chemistry, have you mastered these skills? And so when I get a report card from my kid's school, I can say, oh yes, he has or has not mastered these individual skills, which is far more powerful than a C or an A. Because as the teacher, I look at a C or an A with a kid that comes into my classroom and I say, well, I have no idea what this kid knows. And it's like in sports, you know, I would rather know which, whether a kid is a really can dribble a ball really well um, versus whether they scored the number of goals that they scored over a, uh, you know, over a season. So I, I push the answer of what is failure back on the person asking me that question, because how you, whether you're a parent or a coach or a teacher, how you describe failure, how you define failure is going to tell me a lot about how you parent and how you teach and how you coach. 
Because if you're viewing it as an endpoint, then you're sunk. And if you're allowing your kids, your students, your whatever, to view failure as some sort of um, indictment of them or of an identity, then then you're sunk too. And and we can talk about this if you want. But you know, girls and boys view failures, um, quote unquote failures, differently. And I think that it's important for us to understand that difference as well, um, because it makes us better teachers and mentors and coaches. Okay. There's probably 30 things in there that I want to talk, that I want to, talk to you about. Okay. Like, I'm, 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 you know, the, the, you, you're, you're creating a dilemma for me here, Jessica. I'm sorry. Because I'm I've been sorry. taught early enough, like, from my own parents, you know, have eye contact with people, but I can't yes. because I'm trying to write down over uh, here everything you're writing for me to, for me to ask the questions. I, I love it. So, okay. First of all, a couple of comments. Yeah. And then I want to ask you a question because I get you that I'm going to talk to you about how I, as a family, my wife and I, how we define mm -hmm. success and failure. And I want Great. you to tell me, are we wrong? Are we right? How can we change this? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. First is a comment. You talked about, Hey, well, second place, you're the, you're the first loser, right? As the saying right, goes, right, right, right. or, or it's an A, a B, a C, D. Now, and by the way, grades, uh, I, I, in, in how, and I think you say it in the book specifically, I think you, you say, Hey, okay, look, I'm going to say this mm -hmm. grades are bad. Now you don't, yeah. you say it a lot more eloquently. They're, I, yeah. They're not, they're a blunt instrument. That's not always a great measure of learning. And, yeah. and coming in, and, and as you have a 2.02 GPA college graduate reading that, I want to, I want to be like, all right, let's talk <laughs> about grades then. Okay. Yeah. Like, yes, I, I, I want to talk about that. But one of the things, whether it's that or where you finish in, in uh, athletically first, second, third mm -hmm. place, the, we had Dr. Hendry Weisinger on a few, uh, maybe a month ago on mm -hmm. the podcast. And he, he wrote a book about human performance and about stress and pressure mm -hmm. and he talks about having an excellence mindset versus a ranking mindset. Right. A ranking mindset is always, well, how am I doing or how are you doing if you're a parent with your children or coach with their team? How are you doing compared to the, to the competition? Right. right. An excellence mindset is as you're talking, this is what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about mm -hmm. this conversation, which I had with him, which is an excellence mindset is, did you do your best? Now, competition is good because mm -hmm. it helps push you to do your best. Mm -hmm. But the better job that as an individual, we can stay focused on do your best. And as a parent with young children, instilling that in our children and that idea in them, or as teachers or coaches, it, it leads to greater success. And it also, in, in what he was talking about is, and you're taking pressure and stress out mm -hmm. of both parents and children. And none of us perform well or better under stress. None of us do. There are those people who don't perform worse, as science has showed us, but nobody performs better under stress. And as you're talking about that with grading or with that ranking mindset too, mm -hmm. you're, you're clarifying it, it in an right. academic setting. 
Well, if you look at the brain, so if we're going to talk about the brain and, and learning, and I'm going to not, not get too wonky here, but the fastest way to, um, to stop learning in a kid is to introduce stress. And, and stress, I want to be really, uh, there's a book out there called Under Pressure written by Lisa Demore. She writes about girls. She's brilliant. She's a, a psychiatrist, a psychologist. She's just so brilliant. And she talks about, you know, stress is not a bad thing. We as humans, you know, stress, there's a certain amount of framing to be done with stress. But what we do know is that if I have um, a classroom of kids in front of me and I want to make sure they really truly learn a concept, the thing I'm not going to do is start like timing them on how fast they can do it. Or um, I'm going to make sure that everyone is in, you know, feeling fairly comfortable because stress is the fastest way to short circuit learning. And that's why kids who are in, you know, uh, having uh, being beaten at home, who don't have food insecurity, who don't know, you know, where the next meal is coming from, those kids don't learn as well because they're so their brains are just not able to do both the learning and to cope with the stress. So mm -hmm. you're absolutely 100% right. And from a learning in the brain perspective, again, you are right on. The brain does not learn as well when it is under, when it's facing extreme stress. Now, let me ask, because I have you, as I said earlier, mm -hmm. our listeners, my teammates at the program, my listeners, they've heard this story before, but Jessica, my, as I told you, we have, before we started here, um, my, I've got a nine-year-old son. I've got a three and a half-year-old daughter. Mm -hmm. The reason for that age difference is just challenges that we had. Uh, my wife had staying pregnant after mm -hmm. having our son, unbelievable woman. She went through four and a half years of IVF on the last possible embryo that we had left. She got and stayed pregnant with uh, our beautiful uh, free range daughter. <laughs> um, during that time period, we started looking into adoption and, mm -hmm. uh, for a host of reasons, it didn't work out for us. Then my wife gets pregnant. Then we decide, Hey, look, we'd still go through the adoption process, even though now we have two biological children. And then we ultimately, it still's not working out for us. And finally we decide, Hey, look, let's foster care instead mm -hmm. of adopt. Well, thank I just don't call so the much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Well, I appreciate that. It's certainly nice to hear that, but, but uh, again, being a parent is I've climbed Mount Everest. I've done nine, mm -hmm. eight Ironmans. I've done, you know, jumped at all. It, yeah. It all pales in comparison to being mm -hmm. called dad. Right. And my yeah. wife feels, feels the same way about mom. So uh, we always feel that and we hope to feel this way. Right. We'll see it in the future. But those relationships being completely selfless ends up being very selfish. You get much more in return than you do. But anyway, OK, I digress. So the point is, is I just don't have the I don't make the opportunity. I don't make the right. time to call the right. adoption agency and tell them we're we're done with adoption. The following week, you get, we get a call from the adoption agency saying, hey, do you want to adopt this little boy? We say yes. We, we change our minds and we say, yes, we will. Uh, go through the whole process. I go to New York City and, and pick up now our, our baby boy, who we decide we're going to call Eric Lewis Capitulip mm -hmm. Jr. Um, Congratulations. Well, yes. Um, <laughs> and a week later, the birth mother changed her mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I have to now bring the child back. <clears throat> I come home that night. 
uh, by the way, this is during COVID. This is just a few months ago. Oh so my goodness. Oh, th- I had no th- idea. This is uh, during COVID. So I got it. I'm doing this by myself. Okay. So I, I drive mm-hmm. the, or, you know, her son uh, back to her. Um, and I'm driving home and my wife on the way down had said, and by the way, I leave my house, my wife and my two children are huddled together on the kitchen floor mm-hmm. crying. Yeah, of course. You get choked up here talking about it. So anyway, so I, I, I drive them down and my wife texts me and says, Hey, is it okay if Axel doesn't go to school tomorrow? Mm-hmm. And I said, Hey, whatever you want. And then I, I continued the drive. I dropped the baby off with the social worker. I turn around, I come home and uh, I, I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about everything. Mm-hmm. Obviously I'm in the car by myself. I'm thinking about everything. New York city is yeah. a three and a half hour car ride away. <laughs> so um, I text my wife back and I say, Hey, have you spoken to Axel yet? Our son about school. And she said, no, I haven't talked, spoken to him about it yet. And I said, Hey, can you hold off on it? Mm-hmm. Um, until I get home. And if it's okay with you, as she and I spoke, I, I would like him to, to go to school tomorrow. Well, I get home, I stop at McDonald's, <laughs> I get home that night and we have a conversation. And it, what I talked to my son that night about was this is how we define. And I hope that he defines success and failure in his own life. Mm -hmm. First winning and losing winning is important. It is. If it, if you don't say it is, then tell me if when you pin somebody on a wrestling mat, you don't feel better about it than when you get pinned. Mm-hmm. Like it feels good to win. So I don't want to say winning isn't important, but what I want us to make sure that we understand is that recognizing that winning is important. Let's not focus on it. Right. Instead as a family and you Axel, as an individual, let's stay focused on being a success. And what that means is you give your hundred percent, you do your best in everything that you do mm-hmm. in your preparation and also in the execution. Mm-hmm. If it's athletics, that means a hunt, give, do your best in practice, do your best in a game and be consistent about it. Mm-hmm. Have the ability to do it regardless of the wins and the losses, just keep doing it. And ultimately that'll make you a success. That's what you did as a big brother and you're experiencing a loss and that hurts. I know. Yeah. But if we can stay focused on doing our best, ultimately will be a success. However you end up defining it in your life, Axel, you'll end up being Mm -hmm. that number one, number two, if we're going to be successful, we must be, you use the term resilient in the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What the term that we use, and there's been lots of uh, science and writing about right. this, right, right? Right, right? About, is it resilient? Is it grit? Is it tough? Mm-hmm. Is it, we use the word tough. Okay. okay. And, and I, what my conversation to him was, if we're going to be a success though, being tough is mission critical because mm-hmm we're going to suffer loss. We're going to suffer disappointment in our life. We're going to suffer setbacks Mm -hmm. and tough people get up in the morning and they move forward. Mm -hmm. Your mother is going to get up tomorrow morning and she's going to go to work. I'm going to get up tomorrow morning and I'm going to go to work. Mm 
mm-hmm. and you're going to get up tomorrow morning and you're going to go to school. Mm-hmm. That was the conversation I had with him that my wife and I had with him eating mm-hmm. McDonald's late at night that night when mm-hmm. we just dropped off his, his baby brother. Yeah. Am I right? Are we <laughs> wrong? What could we have added or taken away from that conversation yeah. in your opinion? I think you and I talk about things in a really similar way. Like I, I don't use the word tough only because the connotation of that word, especially for boys, tends to mean don't show your emotion, da, 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 da. And I'm not saying you're defining it that way, but in sort of the culture we have, tough tends to mean suck it up, don't show any emotion. I'm Mm -hmm. thinking about a moment when um, I was having a conversation with a middle school boy and he had done something wrong and he knew he had and he didn't know how to respond and it was there were so many emotions going on that he stood up, he was sitting, he had been sitting facing me and he stood up and he went into the corner of the room and put his face in the corner of the room because he didn't want me to see him crying. And that to me is, is not tough. That is, you know, so let me just pull back on that one thing, but you and I talk about this stuff in a very, very, very similar way, because I say in order for kids to truly believe us, when we say what we really care about is the learning is um, as opposed to the end product is we have to focus more on the process, the process of learning, the process of becoming the process of whatever it is, as opposed to whatever end product is out there. And when you had this conversation with your son, what you were saying was it is more important that we do our best in every step of the process um, as opposed to that we win in the end or that we whatever our whatever that end point is and that's something that um, I think if parents are more focused on making sure that um, we are teaching them about how to be their best selves in this moment how to do better next time how to be strong people who are not just afraid to um, show their emotions, but also to go back out into the world when things haven't gone their way. I, I'm totally in agreement with all of that. I think that's a really important thing to teach kids. It's what I try to teach my kids all the time. At the same time, I work with a lot of therapists and, psych- and psychiatrists and psychologists, and especially right now during COVID, one of my biggest messages to parents has been that right now, there are times when whether or not a kid can add two fractions has to take a back seat to their mental health. And while kids are incredibly resilient by nature, right now, a lot of us are really um, feeling a lot of anxiety and a lot of hurt and a lot of fear and most of all, a, a distinct lack of control. And so I do think it is imperative every once in a while to do a little time out for mental health. And it's one of the reasons that I sort of keep a well of, um, sort of get out of school free cards that, you know, if, if my kid just, and right now we're not doing that as much because he's blah, 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 half virtual school, half not all that sort of stuff. (laughs) But, you know, I, I think a balance between the two is really important because I think it is really, really important. The kids know that we're going to have their back when they come to us and say, daddy, today, I just, I don't feel like I can do it today. And I need a break. I just need to be with you. I just, can we just, you know, go and get an ice cream together so that we can talk. That kind of thing has to be okay too, because I worry that if you just say be strong, then 
what sometimes kids hear by that is I don't want to hear that you are having issues. So as long as you're balancing that, be strong with, but I want you to talk to me about what it means to you, what you would need to do to be strong in this moment. Does being strong in this moment mean talking to me about how sad you are that this didn't work out and and suddenly your life is changing in a way you didn't expect um, and that things have been taken out of your control and that makes me sad too. You know, I thought I was going to be a daddy again and you thought you were going to be a brother again and those conditions are out of our control and that's scary. So to me, that's strong too. That is strength in a kid. And it's the reason that social emotional learning is so important to teachers in schools right now, because we need to teach, especially boys that it, and it, girls as well, but we need to teach kids that it is okay to put words to the feeling that we're having and express them um, to other people, because that's how we get help. And as someone who frankly, is in her, I'm in to six and a half years of recovery um, as an alcoholic. Um, I would not be sober right now if I didn't um, prioritize my ability to um, have a timeout <laughs> from my mental health or have an exit strategy when I didn't feel safe or, or um, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I just think balancing those two messages is going to be incredibly important for all kids, especially right now. Two, two things. First of all, let me start with the, the, the serious, most important one. Uh, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, keep fighting. Absolutely. To, to, to do that, uh, you, you, I can't speak from personal experience, uh, but I at least have enough empathy to appreciate that every day must be a challenge in getting outside your comfort zone. And... Uh, that you are doing it, mm-hmm. I'm proud of you. Thank you. And you just said the word empathy and what and that what you just did right there saying, I don't have this experience, but I have enough empathy for your situation to, to at least be able to um, have a shared feeling of, you know, to, to understand where you're coming from. That's what I'm talking about is your kid, if, if you're looking at your kid and you're helping them build their empathy and their perspective taking for other people, part of what might have been upsetting for your son on that particular day was how upset mommy and daddy were. And that is such an important part of um, parenting a kid. It's so important to say, you know what? I get that you're also sad and I get that you're also sad because mommy is sad and you're sad because I'm sad. all of that empathy and perspective taking is one of the most important things we can do for kids. So I'm just, I'm so glad you're using language for like that with me because I'm assuming that that language also translates over to your parenting and that's so important. Yeah, I'm about freaking perfect, Jessica. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as I can a, tell as that a, as a I parent, can tell. Uh, Jessica, you know, <laughs> the uh, part of the story that I didn't say and that you reminded me of and, and that I was glad to hear, and this gets back to, I think, as a country and, and the connotations of certain words, right? That you talked about privilege earlier mm-hmm. and it creates this like visceral response yeah. at this point when we hear right. it, right? Or right. now the word tough, right? Right. And the, the thing that I highlight to people, because when we talk about what are our core values and when and we're going to talk about this here shortly. Mm-hmm. Tough is one of them. I talk about to Axel about toughness and, and to my daughter, you know, she, again, she's three and a half all the time in that conversation that we had with Axel that night, the point that we highlighted to him. And I'm so glad to hear you say it 
was before we talked about going to school, we said, now look, now listen, X, you cried tonight. Tough guys cry. Mm-hmm. Tough guys show emotion. Make sure you do so. If you feel the need to do so, that's a choice you make. But understand that tough guys show emotion, number one. Really tough guys can ask for help if they need it. Yeah. Really tough guys can ask for help. Now, with that said, really tough guys also move forward. Yep. And we're going to go to work tomorrow. And you're so. Uh, we're using very different language and getting at the exact same thing. And that's why you talk about connotation. There's denotation, which is like a dictionary definition of a word. And there's connotation, which is the sort of the cultural stuff that gets hung all over a word like privilege or tough. And those that's why it's so important to talk about what these things are with our kids. Because if you say, you know, if I were to use the word tough, you know, be tough in my family, it might mean something very different from what it means in your house. And as long as you have a family understanding of what that word means, that includes those things you talked about, I am all over it. I think. Yeah. Let's define these terms for you now. Okay. um, Again, I'm doing something that my my wife points out to me all the time is talk to myself all day long, my favorite subject. And, the, and I have, and I have, and I have Jessica Leahy on here with me and I want to hear <laughs> from, from you. Okay. You discussed that we have taught our children to have a fear of failure. Yeah. How do we do so on a day-to-day basis? What are, what are some of the things that we're doing that we need to be aware about so that we're not doing that? So uh, very much what I talked about before, having an excessive focus on end product as opposed to a focus on process that really sets kids up to be um, especially really anxious and perfectionist kids when we are very focused on, you know, the quiz, the scores, I, you know, or the, uh, you know, the test result, the grade, the whether or not I made honors, the goal, the, you know, whatever the, as you well know, for example, when you think about what a goal, what, think about a soccer match, um, you know, there are very few goals scored relative to other, you know, sports all of the things that go into that goal being scored is not that forward kicking the soccer ball into the goal. There's so much that goes into that. And that process is what you focus on in coaching, not here's how you get the ball in the net. If that's all you taught, then you would have a terrible soccer soccer team. So if you can focus more on all of that other stuff that goes into the process of becoming um, a great team together or a great individual athlete, um, that process is the most important thing. So when we, when I talk about fearing failure, often it is us being so worried about our kids just not being a success either today or in this world eventually. And it's really gonna depend on what you've built up as your markers for success. And I have met those stereotypical horror story parents who view getting into Harvard as the indicator of whether or not their kid is successful. Although, you know, it depends on where I am. If I'm on the West Coast, they're pointing at star. There was this one girl who said, my parents, uh, my parents say, I'm going to be a doctor and I have to go to Stanford. And I even went to her teachers and I said, is she exaggerating or is that like a thing? And they're like, oh no, that is a thing. That is what her parents have said. Our measure of success is you will go to Stanford, you will be a doctor. I talked to a mother who um, 
all of the kids in this particular generation of kids have gotten into Ivy League schools. And if her kid does not also make it into an Ivy League school, she is a failure as a parent. That's number one, a horror show for kids. Like us pinning our success as a parent on their accomplishments is so unfair to them. And P.S., if we're saying that we're a success because they succeeded, then we're co-opting their successes. It's the reason, um, it, the big example in our family we point to a lot is when my older son, who's now in college, was looking at colleges, which is an incredibly complicated question of where you go to college. There are, you know, there's 2,800 accredited colleges and universities in this country. And each one of them is slightly different and where your kid goes should be a fairly individual choice. And so the one thing I said to my kid is, I will never put a sticker for your chosen school on the back of my car because your decision about where you go to school, where you get your college education is more important than my ability to brag about it in the grocery store parking lot. And I will not co-opt that. That is not my success. That is yours. And it's not just about a success. It's about a very nuanced decision. So if we could just pull that every time we're tempted to focus on the process, we're amping up the kid's anxiety. We're amping up our anxiety. We're amping up competition between parents. But the more we focus on the process, the more we can help kids. And the thing is, we often tend to talk about anxiety, uh, uh, anxiety and perfectionism in kids, but also think about what this means for kids who are neuroatypical, kids with special needs. If all of their benchmarks have to do with outcome, then it is more likely that their anxiety and their um, sort of self-worth is wrapped up in those, those outcomes. And for them, you know, take a kid with dyslexia, their reading benchmarks are going to be harder to come by than a kid who doesn't have dyslexia. So if we're focused more on their individual process, then we're a lot more likely to see this individual kid for where they are and who they are, as opposed to what grades they bring home, what trophies they bring home, what, you know, honor roll they bring home. And that's, you know, I think the benchmarks that we tend to use, the grades, the points, the scores, the honors work great for some like you know, a very small sliver of kids. Um, but we know that extrinsic motivators like grades, points, scores, money for grades, sticker charts, all of that stuff does not work in the long term to motivate kids. We have 40 years of really clear research. Go read Edward DC's Why We Do What We Do, The Science of Self-Motivation. We know that Extrinsic motivators do not promote long-term motivation and they also um, are really terrible for creativity. So if we could focus more on intrinsic motivation, which is a kid's drive to do the thing for the sake of the thing itself, um, then we're gonna be in good shape. And the three things we need to do that, to promote intrinsic motivation, are autonomy, which means giving our kids a little bit more control over their lives and their decisions, helping them feel competent and not just confident. Competence is like is confidence based on experience, meaning you know they've done a thousand drills and they know they can do that thing and connection. And most of what we've been talking about so far has been connection, like whether it's parent-child or coach-child, whatever. Um, with teachers, it's a little more complicated because it has to do with relevance of the subject and connecting what we're learning in the classroom to the bigger world out there. But for parents, it's super, it's super simple. We have to love the kids we have, not the kids we wish we have. Mm -hmm. And we can't just love them based on their performance. And 
you're nodding, I'm nodding. I'm like, yeah, I would never. But when I talk to kids on the road and I ask them specifically, I make everyone in the auditorium close their eyes, include all the kids and everything. And I say, think about this really hard before you answer this question. Raise your hand if you believe, truly believe in your heart that your parent loves you more when you bring home high grades and less when you bring home low grades. About 70 to 80% of middle school students raise their hands in the affirmative and about 80 to 90% of high school kids raise their hands. So that is a lot of kids who truly in their heart believe that we love them more when they bring home these grades, points, scores, trophies, honors than for themselves. And that is emotionally devastating. So process over product, love the kid you have, not the kid you wish you had, and do not just love them based on their performance. Sorry, I got a little strident there, but I, I always it. get strident when I'm talking about, you know, how we can do better for kids. I love it. A couple things. Uh, Edward DC, I'm saying that correctly, right? Ed Edward DC. Yeah, he's he's the man. He is the he, man. You you highlight something when you were talking about uh, rewards. And you mm -hmm. said uh, you you quoted him because he had you had talked about if if you want to make sure your children uh, don't like school, pay them for good grades. If you want to, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a fairly it's it's really is that simple. And you you highlighted uh, the the, uh, the what his work, Edward Deasy's mm -hmm. work, and when yeah. people think about uh, incentives for performance. And you, you talked about uh, when's the last time that you saw a seal balancing a ball on their nose when there wasn't a trainer around to give them a piece of fish? Yeah, I laughed. You know, I laughed out loud when I read that. I mean, it's that's really if I mean if uh, it's overly simplistic, but because beha human behavior and sort of this behavioral method of like give you know, the way we train dogs or seals is slightly different. But the idea is that short-term incentives or rewards, extrinsic motivators in exchange for a behavior we want works very, very well in the short term. Um, and so it tricks us into thinking it's going to work forever. And it doesn't, it doesn't. The stakes go up, inflation happens, the rewards start to just be old and not work as well. Um, we really have to start thinking about how we engage that intrinsic motivation. And you know this, right? No one who's playing a sport simply because someone wants them to, or they want their parents' approval, or they want, you know, they're, it's hardly ever that a an athlete is going to get to the higher levels when they're doing it for those extrinsic motivators. 100%. It's the ones, it's the kids who are doing it because they love the thing. And you know, this is when I we come down to these conversations about quitting. And I know we have differing opinions on this, but those kind of questions come down to, um, you know, why are you in this? And it's in those darkest moments when things go badly, when you lose a game and it's all your fault, when you scored on the wrong goal and you actually just won the game for you, the other team, being in it for the right reasons is what is going to save our kids and help them move forward and go on to play that next game. We, we have, we work with numerous professional teams and contrary to what so many people think about, oh, they just do it for the money. None of them just <laughs> yeah. do it for the money. None do. Yeah. Um, intrinsic motivation. I, I want to hear this again because mm -hmm. it's it's a mission critical, right? Exactly. It, it, it's yeah. it's mission critical, right? Right. Is three things: autonomy, mm -hmm. 
which is like, it's like independence, but different. It's about control over the details of your life, control over actions, control over outcomes. It's linked in a little bit with self-efficacy, but yeah, it's, it's control more than anything else. Competence born, yep. which is not confidence. Right, right. <laughs> you competence is yeah. competence is confidence based on experience so not that sort of overinflated like my parents tell me i'm just an amazing gymnast and so i'm gonna get a 10 you know a score today um competence is you know i have fallen off that balance beam a thousand times and i know what i have to do when i start when i do that round off back backhand spring on the beam because i've done it and fallen off and i've done it and not fallen off um for uh, for me it might mean you know like i'm gonna pitch an article to a new magazine and I don't know what their parameters might be, but I've done it to like 16 other places. And so I have the competence to sort of figure it out. Um, that's durable, whereas confidence is easily burst. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, the self-esteem movement, abject failure, because what we were told as parents is if we tell our kids enough times how wonderful they are, then they're going to feel great about themselves too. And that's not what the research shows. Um, for kids with really low self-esteem in particular, the more we tell them how great, perfect, talented, gifted they are, these sort of labels that we throw on them for just like inherent traits, actually the worse they feel the lower their self-esteem gets because it creates um, a confusion like if i have a kid who's not doing well in my class and they're feeling like oh man i just i don't understand this i feel bad about myself and they go home and they tell their parents you know look i'm doing really poorly in mrs Leahy's latin class i just don't get it everyone else seems to get it but me and the parent says but that can't be true you're so smart you're so brilliant you're so talented what the parent is saying is your reality is invalid my reality is correct and the kid is left with not only feeling stupid in my class, but also the sense that their reality is not bad, that their perception of, of the world around them is invalid. And that's confusing for kids. So competence is based on, you can't make a kid feel competent. You can't talk a kid into competence. You can talk a kid into confidence. I could tell my kid he's a fantastic basketball player. And if I say it for 10 years, he's gonna think he may think he's a fantastic basketball player, but he isn't a fantastic basketball player. He doesn't have any competence in basketball. I've seen him play basketball, he's terrible. And, and then autonomy, competence, and then connection. And, and those, yeah. and connection Connection's is- Connection is at its very simplest form is just the feeling that the people around us that are supposed to have our backs and protect us and love us do that no matter what, that it's not based on our performance. It's not based on um, any anything other than just who we are and our connection together. Like I said, it gets more complicated when you're talking about coaching. Um, when I talk to coaches or parents, or, sorry, when I talk to coaches or teachers and do like a professional development kind of thing, um, for teachers especially, this is like a 90 minute conversation because it has to do with engagement and relevance and how you're, there's this really cool study that I love to cite um, from a book called Reaching Boys, Teaching Boys. It was a, uh, educators from a consortium of boys um, boarding schools asked boys to relate to them the best lesson they ever had. Like when, give me a lesson in school where you just learned a ton and it was really successful. Don't tell us about the teacher. We don't care about that part of it. Just tell us about the lesson. 
first of all, the boys were unable to do it. They were unable to extricate the teacher from the lesson because the teacher was such an integral part of the lesson and that's part of the connection. But they also identified certain parts of that lesson that made the learning relevant for them that made the learning emotional for them because there's an entire book behind me about the fact that all learning is emotional. We do not learn when it is disconnected from emotion. So it's the reason that I'm never going to fully learn the rules of, I don't know, I don't like to, I don't like gambling is just a thing in me. So I'm never going to learn the rules of poker thoroughly because I don't care. It's just not something I'm emotionally engaged with. Mm -hmm. However, you start to tell me about the history, the etymology of a given word and how it came down through the, I'm like, I'm all over that. I'm going to know that for the rest of my life because emotionally that's the kind of stuff I care about and love. So relevance for teachers and coaches is the trick is how do we make this connection, whether it's an interpersonal connection or a connection to the sport or the subject extend to, you know, everything having to do with this learning process. So, but it, for parents, it's really simple. It's about the love the kid you have, not the kid you wish you had, and don't just love them based on their performance. It's a really simple equation. Jessica, right there, that last piece right there is, is how your book changed my life. And this, it made me a better parent. Okay. Tell me, tell me, I want to hear. My son competes at ultimate obstacles, ultimate obstacles. We live actually kind of close to each other. I'm, I'm in Northeastern Connecticut. So okay. he, he, he uh, goes to a place called ultimate obstacles in Worcester, Massachusetts. Okay. I love it because the coaches there coach after what would appear like they read the gift of failure. Okay. <laughs> That's the way they coach. Okay. Um, Axel's flourished doing this. Now I go and watch and invariably he's on some obstacle. First of all, what I've noticed in my time with him going, he's nine now, he started when he was five, mm -hmm. is when I shut up, you talk about duct tape parenting in your book. <laughs> yeah. When Maybe I hopeless, shut up yeah. and don't say, Hey, go try that obstacle. Hey, go try this obstacle. Hey, this is what you've got to do. He does much better. Mm -hmm. He does. He enjoys it more. And because he enjoys it more, he does better at it. That's been a growth process for me. Okay. Number one. Number two, though. So now, now that he's at Ultimate Obstacles and he's been doing it for a while and he loves it, he's gotten good at it. Well, there's an obstacle and he gets to the top of it. He completes it. And he, and then he says, Hey daddy, videotape this. So I videotape it and he gets to the top and I show him the video. Then he does another obstacle and he says, Hey, I want you to video, Hey dad, videotape this. So I go to videotape it and he doesn't get it. I delete the video and I say, Hey, try that again. I'll get a video of this one. And he doesn't get it. And I delete the video. After reading your book the other night, I said, I thought you're a bad dad. You're, 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 you talk about staying focused on the process, mm -hmm. that that's what matters, not the outcome. Mm -hmm. Okay. But what are you instilling in your son when you mm -hmm. only save the videos right, right. that he gets to the end of the obstacle? You're the other a coach. Night, you know, you know, the value of, of watching your own performance and, and figuring out where things went wrong. So you don't do it again next time. 
I'm a bad dad. I mean, I'll talk. No, I'll, I'll, no, no, I'll, no. I'll tell you. I'll tell you the stories about. Oh, look at me. Look at this story I had with my son after the failed adoption. But I want to also be completely upfront and reading your book. And so the other night, Jessica, the one that he didn't make it, I said, mm -hmm. "Hey, look, look at this video." Yeah. Let me highlight something to you. I'm equally, if not more, proud of you for this one, where you didn't make it, Axel. That's awesome because you are at your outer limit when you missed this piece of the obstacle. Mm -hmm. You're out there. Like you see yourself when you miss it, you're physically done. Yeah. You're pushing yourself. Axel, I'm never going to delete another one of these videos again when you don't make it. Because if you do this, Axel, the ones that you'll, you're going to get over it eventually. And Boy, and I thought, you know what, boy, you badmouth parents all the time about, oh, how many goals did you score today? Yeah. Well, that's what you're basically doing here. And, well, and that's how your that's how your book changed me as a parent. Well, next level for that is um, and this is gonna sound so helicoptery, but if if you ever were to watch one of those videos for your kid with your kid, if you're able to keep your mouth shut and say to your kid, you know, let's watch this video and ask the kid what they think they could do differently next time. I mean, that's really what is at the essence of a positive adaptive response to failure is, okay, here's the thing I just did, what worked and what didn't work. So let's say one of the things I said before is, you know, don't just love your kid based on their performance. So let's, let's take it to not just climbing up a, an obstacle, but they bring home a test. Let's say they bring home two different tests, two different days. One is an A, one is an F. You bring home those two tests. Our response tends to be for the A, you freak out, you put it on the refrigerator, you call up grandma, you FaceTime with grandma. Okay. So, and then our response to the F is usually either silence or for me, it tends to be silence because I'm like, okay, how do I handle this? What do I do? What do I do? But we can actually respond, maybe not on an emotional level, but on a practical level to those two grades the same way. Because if our response to those two grades is, okay, so what did you do to get that grade? What are you going to do differently next time? What are you going to repeat next time? What went well? What didn't go well? Did you talk to your teacher to find out what you didn't do well and what you did do well? Oh, you say your friend got an A and you got an F. Well, what did your friend do that you didn't do? What did you do that your friend didn't do? Did you get enough sleep last night? Did you know that uh, getting an extra hour of sleep is more valuable to memory um, retention than an extra hour of reviewing? You know, that kind of stuff yeah. that, you know, that whole that's what um, you mentioned at the at the top of this when you introduced me, the Stinky and Dirty show on Amazon. That's what that whole show is about, which is two machines who think sort of at a preschool level have to solve a problem. They come up with a completely absurd first solution to solving the problem. They try it. It fails miserably. But they say, OK, well, this part of what we did seems to have some promise. So let's keep that but let's not do that other thing because that clearly didn't help. And then they move forward to the next iteration. So you talk about being really proud of yourself for keeping your mouth shut while things are going well, but it's keeping your mouth shut while things aren't going well and eliciting your child's opinion of what they could do differently next time that is gonna really hammer home that what I care about is the learning 
and what I care about is the process and less the product. Yeah, that's great. where the, that's where they start to believe us when we say, sweetie, I love you. And what I care most about here is the learning. Because if we're sticking that A up on the refrigerator and putting that F down the garbage disposal, then they're never going to believe us when we say what we care about most is the learning because they're, they're seeing that what we care about most is the letter at the top of the page. And I'm not sure. saying those letters at the top of the page aren't important, but take it from me as a teacher, grades are an extraordinarily blunt instrument. And the way we tend to assess kids right now as a nation is not optimal. It's not always about the learning. So just keep that in the back of your mind when you're thinking about, you know, how we respond to their to a high grade, a low grade, you know, that kind of thing, not getting over an obstacle, getting it over, over an obstacle. Because a kid who goes and doesn't get over the obstacle, but gives it a shot on his worst day. Um, I remember a long time ago, a friend of mine on Facebook, she posted a picture of her daughter from the back about to swing as she was at a softball game or a baseball game or a t-ball game or something. And uh, she she struck out. But the point was the daughter has an anxiety disorder and getting to that point where she stood there and took a swing at that ball was a massive win for their family. And that process of getting there has to be, must be more important than whether or not she hit that ball. Great point. When we train uh, we don't do this too, too much with corporations here and there we will, but, but with athletic teams, we do one of the training exercises that we do this experiential training where we are not a company that does trust falls. Um, we have, we bring teams into the deep end of the swimming pool and they've got heavy sweatshirts on and people in, in it's going to come to a back to a question I have for you here mm -hmm. is, because I want to revisit self-esteem. I want to revisit titles <laughs> with you. I want to revisit, but so I'm going to talk about safety next, but so we have teams going the deep end of the swimming pool with heavy sweatshirts on. The first question we get from coaches, from aquatic directors, from everybody is, well, what about the kids who can't swim? Mm -hmm. And invariably those kids grow, have grown up in a society. And first of all, Jessica, so you're very clear here. You will never hear me or anybody at the program ever talk about the kids these days. And it's always somehow <laughs> right. negative, right? And the right, kids right. these days, this, the kids right. these days, that. Right. The, the kids these days, all, all the men and women that I'm privileged enough to work with have all served in the U.S. military, Israeli, British military. And they all have stories of the fact that, yeah, one of the kids these days, that they saved their life. So we're not going to ever talk about the kids these days. Excellent. But the, but this generation has grown up with parents. We're the ones who are different. Mm -hmm. They've yeah, grown up with, so. I'm sorry. Oh, very much so. There's an entire chapter about how we got where we are in the it, gift of failure. And, 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 and by the way, on that is, I, I, I think next month we're going to have Dr. Leonard Sachs, the, the child uh -huh. psychologist come yeah. on. Right. And, and, and yeah. I could hear what he had written about with, with uh, boys adrift. And, mm -hmm. and he wrote that the job of a parent coach teacher is to prepare the child for the path. Right. What we have is a society of parents, coaches, teachers, leaders who are trying to prepare the path for the child. Right. And you write about that in the book. And, and, and I, I loved it. It reminded me of him. But with the student athletes or the professional athletes getting in the pool, it's always, well, they can't swim, 
So what are you going to do for them? Mm-hmm. And somehow co- coaches, professional coaches go, well, he's not a good swimmer, so he's not going to want to do it. And we say, hold on, stop here. Okay. First of all, if you can't swim, you don't get a floaty. All right. Because you're not going to get a floaty against insert your toughest comp- competitor. You don't get that. What you do get is the warriors to your left and to your right. You get your teammates. Okay. Mm-hmm. Number one. So they're not getting floaties. Number two, if members of your team and some will have been lifeguards growing up as kids, mm-hmm. they went to the country club. They, they're, they're lifeguards. They're, they're mm-hmm. unbelievable swimmers. Well, more is going to be expected of them. Mm-hmm. And you may have individuals on your team who did not grow up in those environments and they can't swim. If all they can do is get in the pool and hold on to the side, we're going to celebrate it. Mm-hmm. Because for them to get in the pool, now we never, and by the way, we don't ever force anybody in the pool, but mm-hmm. we have this same conversation with teams. If, if all you can do is get in the pool and hold on to the side, that's awesome. Because you're getting outside your comfort zone. And when we get outside our comfort zone, then we grow as individuals and as a team. And let's celebrate that. Jessica, because of that conversation, there has been a handful of times where athletes haven't gotten into the pool. A handful in 10 years, 160 teams a year, less than five times. And in every one of those times, the athlete eventually does get in the pool, not by us prodding or pushing or doing anything else. They just see it and say, okay, these guys are actually, mm-hmm. they, they actually do mean what they told me they, they meant here earlier, right? But this issue of safety, and I've got to keep my kid safe mm-hmm. is ridiculous to me. It's ridiculous to us as a, our level of our fear factor. That fear runs, I believe, most people's lives. Mm-hmm. That the downside, and, and their science has shown this, more, most people are more concerned about the downside and that the possibility of the downside makes them choose what to do more than the possibility of the upside. Mm-hmm. And I think from that, this idea of, oh my God, I could fail. They don't, you talk about with your son. I worked in the admissions department at the Naval Academy. Do you know the number of parents when I was in the Marine Corps, by the way, which is always funny because I mean, I barely got in there in the first place and then I'm working in the admissions department. But do you know how many parents talked to me and have said, you know, I don't think I'm gonna have Johnny or Jane apply to the Naval Academy because you have a one in like 21 chance of getting in. And I always thought, I feel badly for your son or daughter, that that's the reason why you're not. Because we're instilling this, well, it could go wrong, so don't do it. Your thoughts about that? Well, I, as I talk about this a lot um, with parents in that our fear First of all, it's not entirely our fault that we are so fearful as parents. The media really stirs this up. In oh, us. I was don't, at a, don't get I was, me started. I, <laughs> yeah, I was at a school. Well, I, you know, for so we the science of sort of what goes viral, what instills fear in us, is the things that are most outrageous and most and touch on emotional stuff for us, right? So, and you know, as a teacher. 
we always joke that when for parent teacher conferences, there's always like six people in the room. There's like us, there's the parent, there's the parent's image of the kid, the parent's experience when they were in sixth grade and they got bullied and, and they don't, and the fear of that and all that sort of stuff. So, so I was at a school a little while ago um, and it was a school and I'm, don't want to get too deep into it, but they essentially were not accepting of all of their students. The the school, uh, it was a essentially if LGBTQ kids there, uh, it was a they didn't weren't allowed to be that there. And okay. uh, anyway, the parents were very very worried at this school about um, their kids being sex trafficked, and because it was in the media, and you know this is something that happens, and oh my gosh, my kid's going to get lured online and be sex trafficked. And so I said that I said something about the fact that. Um, we are so concerned about our kids being sex trafficked that we forget to talk to them about the opiates in our in our uh, medicine cabinet or wearing their seatbelt or, you know, all of these practical daily things that feel a little mundane to us and don't feel that threatening. However, the lure of our kids being sex trafficked feels huge and, you know, all consuming. And what, you know, was ironic in that situation is that kids who are the mo at most highest risk of being sex trafficked are kids who have been rejected by their parents and have been kicked out for being LGBTQ. So there was this really strange place where the parents' fear was focused on something that in that context, in most contexts was fairly irrational or remote, um, but at the same time, it was the easiest thing to focus on because it was big and it was emotional. And, and I often refer people to, um, to and you, you talked a little bit about free range parenting, Lenore Skenazi, who wrote Free Range Parents has a new website called Let Grow. And on that site, there is an, a menu option called Reassuring Crime Statistics, because the reality is, is that it is safer to be a kid now in terms of violence, in terms of all kinds of things, than um, all, all kinds of measures, than it has been for a very, very long time, decades. And so, but it's really easy for us to be worried about, you know, some van on the corner that's going to grab our kid if we let them walk to school on their own. Um, and yet, we're not talking to them about the very, very real threat that most kids who end up with a um, an opiate use disorder first got those opiates from their parents' medicine cabinet. So yes. that's, you know, it, it, it all taps into like our fear and our outrage and what the media is hammering away at the, the fear du jour, you know, and I, I don't want to understate the threat of things like, you know, sex trafficking is real and there are some amazing people doing incredible work and it needs to be addressed and all of that stuff. But I'm just saying, don't go there first before you talk about the, the very real and controllable threats that are right in front of us, like whether or not your kid wears their seatbelt. Um, well, those Jessica, things are on important. that point, on that point, and again, we, this, this is an entire another conversation, but Personally, today in our country, what about the fear that we're instilling in our children over COVID though? Yeah, so um, you're asking, full disclosure here, you are asking a woman who is married to an infectious mm -hmm. diseases physician. Yes. My husband is a scientist, he is a statistician, and he is a medical ethicist, okay? So my evidence about my reaction to COVID is based on evidence, mm -hmm. not rumor, not, uh, you know, 
conspiracy theories is based on actual evidence. Someone yesterday on Twitter, I, I love Twitter, T education Twitter, by the way, I follow something like 12,000 teachers on Twitter and it is the most amazing, generous, wonderful place. It's not a, a cesspool like some of Twitter can be. And mm -hmm. someone tweeted yesterday, she lives in New Jersey and their, um, their COVID positivity rate is over 8%. And my husband and I were talking about it. And if our positivity rate was at 8%, we would pull our child out of school and he would stay home and he would do virtual learning. And all these people, and I said that on Twitter, I said, if our positivity rate was 100%, was 8%, we would 100% pull him out of school. And, you know, I think it's what's really important is to have a, a, a science and evidence-based response to, um, to COVID and helping our kids understand that the things, and this is where empathy and perspective taking comes in because a lot of what we're doing around COVID is not for us, it is for other people. And unless, and unless we understand that masks aren't necessarily just about protecting us from getting sick, it is about protecting other people from getting sick in case we are sick. And that understanding of, um, protecting other people, protecting our grandmother, protecting, you know, I can't, I can't go see my parents because of the fear of getting them sick and what that is about and where it's coming from. And, you know, is it true that kids are less likely to get sick, to get, um, you know, symptoms from COVID? Yes, the science is still emerging. It looks like other things do happen. However, in kids, they will fully understand yet, but are they less likely to get sick? Yes. But that doesn't mean that kids don't have to be thinking about other people, which is where our messaging, I think, tends to fail us. Um, that it's not just about us, it's about other people. And I think that's gonna be beneficial if you talk about it that way with kids, it's gonna be beneficial, not just about COVID, but about social emotional learning in general and having empathy uh, for other people in general. And understanding that, you know, my being careful to, my not going practice to practice today because I have a sore throat is not, is gonna keep my teammates safe. And I do that because I care about my teammates more than I care about the fact that the coach had promised that I was gonna to get to be on the starting line um, at this practice today. It's about protecting um, the people around me. It's about our community and our duty to other people. The Greeks had a, um, the Greeks had a term about, uh, about not just having duty to um, you know, a boss or a parent, but having a duty to pretty much everyone we have a relationship with. There's some sort of duty to all people. And that's what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about our duty to each other as human beings. So I, I think as long as we're adhering to the research and, the, and the, the science on COVID, I don't think we can go wrong talking to kids about it. I think my, my, my issue mm -hmm. is that looking at the science mm -hmm. as of what we know today, mm -hmm. kids aren't And look, I know you can say, well, hey, but look, this one kid died from COVID mm -hmm. and stuff. But that's, and called it's, a, and that's called an anecdote. That's not. It, and that's and that's right. and that's horrible. I mean, right. it's horrible for the family, but I don't right. I don't base policy. That, that, there's a reason why the general doesn't fight on the front front line. Right. We so, don't base policy, though, on one kid. We base that's policy, right. Right. Exactly. That's right. So my my issue is, is now you brought up a couple of things here masks mm -hmm. there's nothing that doesn't make me think look everybody just wear a mask okay mm -hmm. like that's okay you got me there check in the box but to keep kids from going to school and at least the teachers that i've spoken to mm -hmm. uh again anecdotally mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. say, oh, no, in-person learning is much better than online learning. Of course it is. That what's in the child's best interest to, to have them go to school for something that doesn't affect them mm-hmm. because of this, I, I don't know, this nebulous kind of like grandma that we always mm-hmm. point to that you're going to mm-hmm. get your grandmother sick. Okay, well, let's get more specific. Um, Sending kids to school is not, I mean, I'm not worried about, as worried about kids getting sick. I'm worried about the teachers. I'm worried about the communities around the schools. I'm worried about community-based transmission because kids tend to be asymptomatic. They They often don't know that they have symptoms. They may not have a fever and yet they're still transmitting, they can still transmit the uh, COVID. So keep in mind, you are not talking to a physician. You are talking to someone who's married to a physician and that gives me a certain amount of knowledge, but that does not make me an expert in this. So yeah. I'm always going to defer to my my bobblehead here. This is my bobblehead of Anthony Fauci um, because that is who I'm gonna to listen to in a time when I don't have all the answers. And keep in mind that anyone that says that they have all the answers right now and that they know for certain, they are lying to you because we don't know. We're still finding out that um, lots of things about how COVID works in the body. I have a friend of mine, um, is uh, one of the long-term, she's she's having long-term symptoms. She had it months and months and months ago and she's still taking steroids for her heart. And we're just starting to learn about what why that's happening. It looks like there's a clotting factor involved. There's a lot of stuff we don't know yet. So I'm gonna rely on the evidence as it stands right now and the people who know what they're talking about. I'm not gonna rely, don't rely on people like me. I'm not a physician, I'm not a public health worker. Um, rely on people who actually know what they're talking talking about. I will tell you though, the highest risk for, um, for, you know, the higher the risk, the higher the contact in the sport, the higher the risk of transmission. And I will tell you that right now in Vermont, New Hampshire, hockey is driving, um, hockey's driving transmission among high school age kids. So, you know, at some point we do need to be realistic. And, you know, from my perspective, um, if, in our state, Vermont right now has really, really low numbers because mask wearing compliance and distancing is incredibly high. And so a lot of people like to say, well, that's because there's very few people in Vermont. There's a lot of room between people. But if you look at the data on states that are as sparsely um, uh, populated as Vermont, that doesn't hold up as a reason why we're having such great results. If you look at the map of the United States, I think we just fell out of green because we had a few case, a few extra cases yesterday. But if you look at a map of the United States until this week, we are the only green state in the nation and that's due to incredibly high compliance for mask wearing and distancing. So I, I just, at a certain point, realism is necessary. But I actually would prefer not to go too much further into it. I'm, I don't want to give evidence. I'm, you know, I don't want to be seen as an expert in this because I'm not. No. You shouldn't be listening to me. You should be listening to my husband or to Dr. Fauci. The, let's move on. You're right. Let's okay. move on. Okay. So this, as it pertains to safety, right, and my belief mm-hmm. that um, y- what you talk about is, hey, instill this feeling into mm-hmm. our, our children to take chances, to, to, to push their limits, right. to, to do these. It's not just about um, 
well, hey, we got to keep our children safe, as you, as right. you highlight. The, the statistics show that our children have never been safer as far right. as crime right. is concerned, et cetera. Right. The, but we still hold on to this. I got to keep my kids safe. When we we're building our dream home here around us, right? Mm-hmm. We, we stayed at a condo facility nearby. All the condos would empty out into this field behind the condos. And, and there's a huge rock over there. And parents would say, hey, don't climb the rock. You could get hurt. My son would look at me and I'd go, no, go climb the rock. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, what, what is this idea of like, well, you could get hurt. That's going to be a reason for us not to do anything. The, well, the and surest- on top of that, on top of that, the more the long the older a kid gets before they climb that rock or that tree, it becomes more and more dangerous for them. So, for example, like if a kid grows up climbing trees, they understand what branches can bear their weight, whether or not a branch is, you know, what their Wardedly. capabilities of where they're where. Because if a kid starts when their comfort zone is low to the ground and they know how to do it safely, then you end up. A friend of mine, uh, her daughter, uh, when we were when she was in like I think she was in like sixth grade we were at a an outside event at the school and I looked up and her daughter was I kid you not at least 50 feet up into a giant pine tree and I turned around I said to my friend and her name is Heidi and she would have no problem with that because she takes great pride in this I said Heidi do you know that Casey is like 50 feet up in that tree and she's like yeah she does that all the time she loves that tree Casey is safer than a kid who is trying that for the first time because Casey has competence doing that skill. So that's the problem for parents who are overly protective of their kids is that these quote unquote risky things get riskier the longer the kid goes without trying the thing. And then if they jump into it when they're an adolescent and more likely to be more attracted to risk, they will be less safe than if they had gone after those things like climbing the rocks and climbing the trees when they were little. Well, you, you mentioned, you mentioned stress and teaching people in stress, and it's not a good environment when you're trying to teach Mm -hmm. people. When you, when you have, when you're developing a skill, what we talk about and big comes from the military is, but, but we have to eventually stress inoculate ourselves. We don't teach people how to do something in a stressful environment, but in the doing of them, you continue to push your boundaries. My question to you though, is in the book, because you can, you highlight, and I agree with you, if failure and mistakes, Mm -hmm. setbacks, and hey, go do that stuff. It's a learning opportunity. And then we just keep pushing and keep pushing. Well, the, the truth is sheep, sheep do not raise lions. In anywhere in the world, sheep do not raise lions. So how can we expect parents who they themselves don't take risks? They themselves don't push outside their comfort zone. Uh, How can we then instill them to make that in their children? Yeah. Sheep are awfully good at being sheep though. I mean, there are kids, they're (laughs) like, (laughs) there, I have taught lions and I have taught sheep and there's a wonderful, wonderful book, by the way, called a fish in a tree. And -hmm. it's based on the saying that if you expect a fish to climb a tree, then that fish is always going to be a failure. Right. But if you expect, you know, their kids are different. And I think one of the problems is, is that if we're not accepting the kids we have for who they are, we may have a lion and we may have a sheep and we're going to have to know, we're going to have to look at those kids and say, you know what, not every Every kid is going to be a lion and that has to be okay too. I'm not talking about like, uh, you know, there are just some kids who are 
introverted. There are some kids who don't, you know, if you look at the, if you look at the research on competition, um, one of the things we know these days, if you go to a website called youcubed, Y-O-U-C-U-B-E-D.org, we know that timing kids on math facts is a really bad way to teach math facts because mm -hmm. speed and mastery are not the same thing. And mm -hmm. uh, speed in introducing a timer into math facts will cause some kids to go faster and excel because they like that kind of competition. And it will cause some kids to freak out and suddenly lose their mastery of math facts. Mm. So why we want all kids to learn exactly the same way or to all be lions or to all be sheep or whatever that thing is, I think that's unfair to kids because there are some kids who are gonna be natural lions and there are gonna be kids, some kids who are gonna be natural sheep and both of those are valid. And so I, I for me, I need to look at, what I say to parents often is I promise that I will not go in. If I was your kid's teacher, I would never go into that classroom, look at my class and say, you know what class today, I feel like teaching honors level 12th grade English. So I'm going to need everyone to be with me today. I'm going to need mm -hmm. everyone to be what I want you to be at the same time. You know, what I have to do is I have to go into my classroom and I have to see where each kid is individually and I have to have some respect for that. Otherwise, I'm a terrible teacher. And if we don't have some respect for who our kids are intrinsically, who our kids are by nature and know and understand that and not necessarily coddle the kid who doesn't ever want to talk to adults, we have to help them do the best they can based on the things that, based on their nature. And, and I just don't ever want us to say, because my kid is, is not a lion, he's a sheep, then he is less than, because that kid could be an amazing, amazing sheep. And that has to be okay too. And I understand your, I understand your metaphor and I understand all that thing. I just think it's really important to understand that kids are different. And we would like to think that as parents and teachers and coaches that we're shaping children, but I'm sorry, kids are different. And I can't make kids be what I want them to be, no matter how much will I impose on the situation. Some kids are just different than others. Let me ask you a different question then, okay? Yeah you discuss that setbacks, challenges, the struggle helps us become our best, whatever that best mm -hmm. might mean, right? right? It's, it's how we grow. Okay, that premise um, I believe to be truth with a capital mm -hmm. T, okay? okay. In, further in the book, you, you discuss that with many of these things, let your, let your children see you struggle. Yes. Let, let's let them see you pick up a book that you know nothing about. Let them see you physically go do something. Now I'm, you didn't say this in the book, but I'm, I'm adding this I took, in. I took guitar with my kid and it was one of the get, most get, embarrassing, okay, so learn, learn embarrassing horrifying. My kid picked it up like like he was playing Layla by like his third lesson. <laughs> and I could barely, Just... <laughs> barely strum my way through a very simple Fleetwood Mac adapted song for guitar losers. Exactly. And it was horrifying, but he saw me uh, in fact, uh, I was told from a very early age that I was just not great at math. That upset me so much after I read Carol Dweck's mindset. Mm -hmm that I went back in my 40s and retook Algebra 1 with my own child and my students. And my son knew how excruciating that was for me and how humbling that was for me. And when I learned that math, 
I was proud of myself and he was so proud of me. And so the next time I say to him, sweetie, why don't you take a class that's outside your comfort zone? I'm not just blowing smoke. I'm saying, because that's what we do as a family, that's what makes us stronger. And that's why every parent, every team captain, every coach has to read Carol Dweck's mindset. I'm sorry. It is one of the most important things that we read. It'll change the way you parent. It'll change the way you think about your own abilities. Please go read Carol Dweck's mindset. About a fixed and a growth mindset. Right. Having, taking chances, setbacks, challenges, moving that's forward. That's how we how, learn. How we view it and all. Great. So my question is, because I, I don't want to miss my the analogy I was making, which was right. if you're a sheep as a parent that doesn't do those things, who doesn't pick right. up the guitar and take that lesson? If you're not the per- but you're telling your child, oh no, you go do it. Yeah, you yeah. go do it, right? Yeah. Your point of I, I don't mean anything by by sheep and lion. I'm saying that right, right, right. if you're gotcha. if if you're not taking risk yourself. Because, and I, and I, and the, the genesis of this question is this, there's lots of things that we talk to our parents about in the book, about what parents should do. Mm-hmm. I agree with 98% of them. I do mm-hmm. want to get to a couple that I don't yeah, to hear course. your thoughts. But when I look at the school Axel attends to, he's on the playground. If he sees somebody being a bully, treating mm-hmm. somebody unkind, mm-hmm. what he's told is go tell the teacher by mm-hmm. his school. Mm-hmm. I tell him, that's the last thing I want you doing. You go take care of it. You go talk to the person who's being unkind. First, first. I mean, in, in education. But now language. he sees that. My question right. is, is that he sees me doing that. He sees me. If I have a problem right. with somebody, I say, of hey, course. look, I just want to have a conversation with you. I don't like the way this is. I don't like this. Let's right. t- talk about this, right? But if children don't have that as their own parents, Mm-hmm. then talk to parents here. What is the problem with that? So what you're describing is very much what we talk about with kids, which is being an upstander and being someone who, um, you know, is going to be the kind of person who has the fortitude, the emotional wherewithal to sort of stand up for other people. And, you know, that's incredibly important as a parent, you know, the, as a coach, you know, this kids do what we do, not don't do what we say, right? So if we're telling them, you need to take chances, you need to read for pleasure, you need to write in a journal, we better be doing those things. I had a mother one time say to me at a talk, how do I, actually what she said was, um, I would love for you to create a list of really challenging books that my kids will want to read for pleasure. And I said, well, that's kind of a fantasy (laughs) list. So let's talk first, do your kids, she said, because my kids just don't want to read for pleasure. And I said, do your kids see you read for pleasure? And she said, actually, no, I, you know, I'm really busy. I work and blah, 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 blah. And I said, there is nothing I can say that's going to magically make your kids want to read for pleasure unless they're seeing you set that example. And, you know, one of the other things I talk about a lot in Gift of Failure is um, when we're at the dinner table talking about how our day is going, we can't keep at secret the fact that we screw up at work that the fact that we got in trouble with our friends for repeating something they said that we they asked we have to talk about those things because when we turn to our kid and say you know what sweetie at work today i hit reply all instead of reply on that email (laughs) and i have so many people upset with me one person feels totally betrayed 
what, how, you know, what would you do in this situation? Mm -hmm. Number one, your kid is like, holy moly, dad's admitting that he makes mistakes. Number two, dad respects me enough and thinks I have the kind of judgment that could actually help him. And number three, it opens up this modeling that's so important, which is, you know what, we mess up, we learn how to do better and we try to be better human beings and we learn from our mistakes. And they're not gonna do that if we just tell them to do that. Um, the story I tell students a lot, even though it's horrifying to me, it is humiliating and horrifying to me every time I tell this story. I was a journalist before I wrote Gift to Failure. I wrote a lot of you know short articles, 1200 words, 2000 words, and down to 800 words. And so I get a book contract to write The Gift of Failure and I write it and I, my fan, in my fantasy world, my editor calls and she says, uh, you know, oh man, there are so few edits on this. This thing is amazing. We don't, we barely need to edit anything. Instead, I get summoned to her office in New York. I have to travel to New York, scared to death. And I have to go in her office. And what she says to me is the draft of this book, this draft of this book is unpublishable. <laughs> it's that bad. And it's not your writing. Your writing is lovely. That's why we bought your book. It's just that you're horrible at organization. You don't know how to write a book, which makes total sense. You are a journalist. You've never written a book before. So we would, so she actually even used the word ghostwriter, which is someone they bring in to help you authors write, be yeah. better writers. Mm -hmm. To me, that made me want to vomit because I'm supposed to be a writer. I'm supposed to be able to write this book. And so I said, I'll make you a deal. I didn't throw up in her office, by the way. I'm very proud of that. I said, let's, uh, let me make you a deal here. If you will let me have two chapters to get this right, like you have to tell me everything I did wrong and I will write it all down and I will learn it. And if you let me have two chapters to get this right, then let's see, then we can talk about whether or not we hire a ghostwriter. And she told, it took her an hour to download everything I did wrong. I filled up a notebook. I got home, I processed that information. I was very humble. I, you know, had to just ego had to go way back to the back burner. Oh, and, um, and I rewrote those two chapters and those two led to four, which led to, which led to a New York times bestselling book. Now my kids were there for every step of that process. And I know for a fact, they are so much more proud of me for having written a book that was that much of a learning process and that much of an ego crushing nightmare than a book that I wrote and it was easy and I did it and it hit the New York Times bestseller list because there is, in my opinion, no such thing as an overnight success. And we need to teach our kids that a hell of a lot of work went into becoming that person who looks a heck of a lot like an overnight success. Go ask any overnight success. And they're like, what that, what do you, what do you mean? I just yeah. landed on the scene and did well. Um, that story um, I was asked to write about my greatest failure for um, Richard Branson's blog. He writes these, he likes stories of failure for his blog and this, and I was asked to tell my story. And the story I was going to tell was the story of getting a D on my first law school exam and wanting to quit law school because I didn't even know how to cope with that. And my students looked at me and they said, what do you mean? That's, that's not your greatest failure. That whole book thing you told us about, that's your greatest failure. Why are you telling that story? And I'm like, I can't tell that story. People will think badly of me. And after I told that story, I got an avalanche of emails from 
people who wanted to be writers, people who wanted to do the thing, some of these things and had had that same experience and were so ashamed they had never told their story to anyone. Mm -hmm. We have to tell these stories, not just other people, but to our children so that they understand that their the road to success requires a lot of pushing ourselves to do things that are really emotionally, intellectually uncomfortable for us at first. And if they don't see us do it, I don't know how we can ever expect for them to do it. Jessica, there's been, now now there's two times that I've wanted to give you a, a hug. One was <laughs> discussing your, your, um, your battle uh, because I'm sure, well, again, I don't know what it is, but, but, but I would think your, your battle overcoming addiction and number two, talking about being told your book is unpublishable. Uh, I have had the same exact thing told to me. We, we published a book last fall, uh, six months prior to that. So this is getting back to the start of, you know, last, the other year, right? Last year, uh, I received that same call. So maybe we have the same mm -hmm. publisher. I'm not sure, <laughs> but feeling that, uh, oh God, it's, it's yeah. tough. It's tough. But here's the thing. Here's what was really cool. But sharing that, it with your kids though, man, yeah. that's awesome though. Well, and then I showed my kids when I got the, the contract to write the book that I just finished, The Addiction Inoculation, I had on pasted to my wall above my desk, a list of what not to do this time around. Like before you hand those chapters in, have you done? And there was like a list, you know, a checklist of all these things I had to make sure I had all the mistakes I didn't want to repeat. Mm -hmm. And when I handed that book in, my editor came back to me with so few edits. And I am even more proud of this book because it is the result of my having put my ego aside the first time and learning all that yes. stuff. Because of course I didn't know how to write a book. I had never written one before. Now I have, now I have some skills. I've written the second book. It was it was gut-wrenching to write because I had to write about substance abuse, but it was easier to write in the mechanics because I had the lessons in me from the first book. So my kids have seen that too. And that success, you know, when my kid comes to me, recently my kid screwed something up big time. It was about a couple of years ago. He screwed something up so badly and he didn't tell me about it because he came to me two weeks later and he said, you know what? I really screwed this thing up about two weeks ago, but I didn't want to come to you and tell you about it until I had solved it myself. And he was so proud of himself for having handled it himself, knowing full well that I would have been supportive and blah, blah, blah. But he wanted to do it on his own. He wanted to come up with a solution on his own and he did and it was difficult and he was far more proud of himself for coming up with a solution on his own than he would yes. have been if i had helped him jessica th that point is key uh i want to talk about that but just before that though it's key yeah. that i think all of our listeners our clients the, the prospects should know that we talk so much about parenting in this conversation but it's vitally important for parents teachers coaches business leaders that to say, here is my mistake. I made these mistakes. To admit to them, it helps develop trust with your children, your mm -hmm. students, your, your athletes, your, your yeah. business associates. It's so, but so many leaders don't do that. 
And it's so detrimental to their relationship and the overall success of the team. Just say, I made a mistake here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. Now, um, Jesse, we're coming up on two hours. I could talk to you for another two hours. I could talk to you for another two hours. Now, that doesn't mean that you want to talk to me for another two hours, but it means I could talk to you. Let me um, go through a, a, a couple of things here. Let me start with this. I've got to get it in because okay, All uh, right. in my preparation for this uh, conversation this morning, uh-huh. uh, I, I reviewed and went over things with my wife uh-huh. last night. One okay. of the parts of the book yesterday my son Axel is doing homework. Mm-hmm. At some point, my wife said to him, Axel, you're very smart. Mm-hmm. Last night, we were having a conversation and I said, can you explain you know, the story of this be- behind mm-hmm. it? Now, let me uh, put in a precursor here that how I'm describing my tone of voice, my body language and what questions I asked mm-hmm. is probably not at all the truth. My wife mm-hmm. would have to come on here to tell you the actual truth, uh, but that's why it's my <laughs> podcast so she doesn't get the opportunity. So but the point is, my question is this, I get, and I could not agree with you more, my wife couldn't agree with you more about the idea of if you want to make sure that failure or setbacks, challenges, struggle is seen as a good thing, then, and, and not just keep stay focused on the achievement at the end or the, mm-hmm. the failure of the achievement right. at the end, is continuously reinforce with your children of any age your, your business associates. I'm so proud of how hard you work. I love your diligence. I love your persistence. I love this to instill in them that what you care about is this. Don't use terms. And I couldn't agree with you more, but in your book, you talked about the term, you know, Americans love terms like gifted. I throw yeah, up yeah. when I hear that term gifted about our, our kids are so gifted. I'm, a, I'm about ready to throw up, right? But the, the, and especially because my son does go to a private school, you know, I mean, parents mm-hmm. talking about, well, our children are gifted. They attend this school. No, our, our kids are lucky because they have parents who make a certain amount of money that can afford mm-hmm. to send our kids here. Like that doesn't mean they're gifted necessarily. But the point is she feels, and she changed my opinion about it. Mm-hmm. Is it a bad thing to tell our children every so often? Hey, you're really smart with this. Absolutely not. See, this is the problem is that there's no, this, you know, we tend to read advice as black and white, like never, Mm. ever, ever tell your, see, this is the oversimplification of Carol Dweck's mindset is partly responsible for this. Um, So Carol Dweck's mindset is a highly nuanced thing, a highly nuanced idea. The book is great. Um, But when it gets oversimplified, it gets oversimplified to never tell your kids you're smart and only praise them based on their effort, which is stupid, right? Because if you it is. I want to. I want to. I want to make sure about that. That's stupid, then, right? Right. Because, because my wife said it to me, and I thought, "Huh." See, that's why you got a simple husband. But no, you bringing but, it up, she she said it, and I thought, "Yeah, you know what? You're you're right. That's a good question." Well, on both that. sides, of course, we can talk, tell our kids that they're smarter, that they're talented at things, and all that sort of stuff. But the idea is that if we only do that, then they're going to think they're going to have this sort of um, fixed mindset that they either 
that, oh, mom and dad say I'm smart. And if I get something wrong, then I shouldn't tell anyone because people won't think I'm smart anymore, that kind of thing. Or we're even worse, they won't think they're smart. But on the flip side, only praising kids for effort is stupid too, because if I'm doing something wrong and you just keep praising me over and over again for trying it again without giving me any guidance or support as to how to do it differently next time so that I learn something from it, then you're a failure as a teacher and a coach too. So when I say, and also about the extrinsic versus intrinsic motivations, of course we can use extrinsic motivators sometimes. Of course we can, we, this is how our society runs. But if we could do a little, focus a little bit more on trying to promote that intrinsic motivation, that would be great too. We're never gonna get away from praising people for inherent qualities or from using extrinsic motivators. I'm just making the argument that if we could shift our, our energy a little bit back towards intrinsic motivation and helping kids say, and by the way, when you talk about praise, like, uh, you know, I'm proud of you for how hard you worked, the more specific our praise is, the more effective it is. So I wouldn't Good. just, generally speaking, I wouldn't just say, I'm so proud of you for how hard you worked. What I would say is, you know, sweetie, um, I'm really proud of you because last night you were doing that math homework and I could see you were really struggling with that problem. And, you know, like a year ago, you might just have given up. And I'm so proud of you for really sticking with that problem. Even if she didn't finish or get the right answer on that problem, the fact that she's sticking with it, that's what we want to encourage in them. And that's why we want to use words like yet a lot. Yet is this incredible growth mindset word where a kid comes to you and says, I can't dribble the ball. I just can't do it. And you say, well, of course you can't do it yet. This is a new skill we're working on. You will eventually, if you practice and you work hard and you work with your team, this is something that you're going to be able to do eventually. But right now today, okay, you can't do it yet. Let's focus on how we get you there. And yet is a growth mindset word that I would encourage parents to start using more and more. <laughs> the we had a conversation with the gentleman, Jessica, called Fred Kaufman. He wrote Conscious Business. It's a wonderful mm -hmm. book. And on that, he's, he's become a very good friend of ours. He's a client, mm -hmm. and, and but just a very good friend, a uh, great friend. And in our podcast, I started off because in Conscious Business, there were so many times in there that I wanted to say, oh, yes, yes. Yes. Now, I don't know if your sons are that into WWE, but my son and I, we watch it constantly. We love it. There's a wrestler called Daniel Bryan, who when he mm -hmm. comes out into the audience, he just starts jumping up going, yes, <laughs> yes. Right. And that he plays certain music. So we did this mm -hmm. on the podcast with with Fred. As you're talking about yet, what I what I am thinking about is yet, yet, <laughs> yet. Like that's what I'm thinking about, about it's, the power. It's not of a it. bad. It's not a bad chance when you come to think about and it. It's, yeah. it's uh, yeah, that that is uh that really is it's a very some, powerful word it is it, it's a shift in our paradigm it's a paradigm mm -hmm. shift of, of yeah. you can't do it yet uh okay now next question uh and, and my wife thanks you uh for that answer <laughs> and because she's gonna she's gonna she's gonna love it let's talk about a couple things here before we close i i do so appreciate your time and here no it makes me better makes us better let's talk about over scheduling yeah what is the problem and we see it all the time i've got to be honest with you again i'm going to talk about my wife i would over schedule my kids mm -hmm. i would i would mm -hmm. my wife can is I, the one can, who says can, can who i says, just ask no 
Yes, go ahead. Yes, okay, please. so why, just, I'm just asking just out of, you know, to sort of set where we're coming from, why would you ever schedule your kids? Oh, I don't know. Be I <laughs> just because you're excited about a lot of things or you're afraid they're going to get into trouble? If okay. Well, no, I'm not worried, especially not with Axel about getting into yeah, yeah. trouble. Yeah. No, I just feel like, hey, we we should do this and then do this and then yeah, do yeah, this. Yeah. I'm, I, I okay. think in my own life, uh, Jessica, if I've, if I've, if the things that I have achieved in my life, mm -hmm. it's not been because of talent, it's been because of discipline. Okay. And yeah. I think most people would say that about me. They, they have. So then I think about my son and my own children and now I'm, I'm pushing mm -hmm. it on them. So my, my wife, and, and by the way, and by saying, no, we should not do this. He's not going to mm -hmm. do something every single night. He's mm -hmm. not going to be there every single Saturday and Sunday. I think my, my son has responded better to it. And it's, it's not something I would have, I would have had yeah. the opposite. What do you say about it? Okay. So my issues with overscheduling are a couple, and let's start with what I think is the most important, which is sleep. So um, kids don't get enough sleep. Um, kids sleep is in our home. Sleep is a non-negotiable. So um, from our perspective, you, we protect sleep to the exclusion of a lot of other things. And um, yeah. because yeah. that is key to physical, emotional, mental health, okay? Yes. So overscheduled kids, what we know is that kids are supposed to get far more sleep that they're getting. And kids who are overscheduled, especially at like high calibers, you know, you know, super high pressure schools are getting um, like, a lot of kids at those schools are getting somewhere around six and a half hours of sleep when they should be be getting somewhere around nine and a half. Okay. So the overscheduling, what that's number one, sleep. Number two, um, scheduling a kid and there are different ways this happens, this happens, but when you are telling your child where they will go, how they will get there, where, when they will do certain things, you are directing their time, right? And one of the things that we know is that a really important executive function skill is called self-directed executive function. And it's being able to manage your own time, being able to manage your own planning for your time. And when kids don't manage their time, where they're going to be, how they're going to get there and, and scheduling their stuff, then they don't tend to learn that particular skill, which is really important. So that's number two. Number three, downtime, time to just let your brain wander is so undervalued. Um, it, it allows us, this is why we're so productive in the shower, right? It's because our brain is allowed to sort of unhinge and wander. And that time, that function in our brain is called our default mode. And the default mode is where amazing creativity happens. It's where a lot of problem solving happens. It's why when I get stuck in my writing, that I get up from my desk and I go outside and I weed or I um, cut some firewood or I take the dogs for a walk because that having the ability to let my brain unhinge more often than not is far more productive for me than sitting there and trying to just force the, the thinking to happen. There's um, a fantastic book called Wired to Create, co-authored by Scott Barry Kaufman and another author. Um, the, uh, the research on the neuroscience is really clear. The default mode is incredibly important. It's where our, some of our best thinking and most creative and innovative thinking happens. And that can only happen with downtime. Downtime, time that is not 
goal oriented necessarily is so important for kids. It's where great learning happens. It's where great creativity happens. So we have to make sure the kids have that time. And fourth, <laughs> the other thing is that kids have so little autonomy in their lives right now, especially, so not only that, it's this whole feeling of a huge lack of control. Um, when kids' lives are overscheduled, it's just another way to take away their choices. And it, this is when it's done in certain ways, obviously. Um, when we allow chunks of time where kids can choose, and we can set parameters on that. We can say there are no screens and you have to be outside. Like in our home, what we tend to say is um, you must get an hour of cardiac exercise a day. That's a non-negotiable. Um, you must go outside and get outside time unless there's a hurricane going on outside. But within those parameters, how you choose to use that time is up to you. Um, we, I am a very anti- scheduling we and this is our priorities and this is the other thing is i know you want to ask me also about things like quitting because it all is based on your family priorities if it is your family priority that um you know you will play a sport and do a musical instrument then okay then it's going to be more important for you to have those things scheduled but in our family default mode time meaning downtime where our brains are allowed to wander, quiet time, reading time, and sleep are incredibly high priority in our family. So I made it very clear. Um, there were certain sports, for example, and I'm not going to name them simply because it's, you know, it's not that important, but there were certain sports that do a lot of traveling that I said, unless my kid was some sort of crazy prodigy in that sport and it was his life dream to do it, that was not an option for our family. We just weren't gonna do that. Whereas one of my best friends, all of her kids play hockey and they all travel a ton and it is part of their family ethos and it makes them so happy and they do it together as a family and it's what makes them so tight because they share this love of hockey. So it's really gonna depend on your family priorities but over scheduling kids often means less sleep, less uh, time, default mode time or downtime. And it also, um, it reduces the amount of time kids have to exercise that um, self-directed executive function. And there's an article I, I wrote about this um, at the Atlantic a couple of years ago, and that the point still stands that idle time is not wasted time. Idle time is incredibly important time um, for our brains. What's your opinion about video games? My opinion during, about during idle time. My opinion about video games is that not all screen time is created equal. The really short answer is you should read a book called. Um, there are two books. One is called Screenwised by Devorah Heitner, and it's fantastic. Another book that is just a slightly different take on screen time is called The New Childhood by Jordan Shapiro. He's a philosophy professor at Temple University. Um, he, uh, screen time is not created equal. If my kids during COVID are spending four hours, if my boys are together on the couch downstairs playing Fortnite, that is bonding time between my kids. If my kid right now, given that he can't see his friends, is downstairs in the basement playing, um, often what my kid, my older kid loves to do this, he'll play Fortnite as a team with his friends and has them all on the phone on a group call at the same time and they're talking to each other as they play. 
that is social time. To me, that's less about screen time than it is about social time. And right now mm. our kids are starved for social time. If we are watching a movie together as a family, that is family time. If my kid, um, my kid happens to spend a lot, my younger kid happens to spend a lot of time on screens because he is obsessed with digital music production and all of the software for that is online, but also all of his best teachers for that are online. He is involved in communities dedicated to learning more and practicing um, digital music production. There is no one in our area that he could go to and talk to about this. So when I look at how much, if I were to just, just say screen time is X number of hours a day, I would take away a really important learning and social experience for my kid and I think it's up to us as adults to understand that our kids are being raised in a very different time, especially given COVID, that texting for kids or using social media apps to communicate with each other is the same thing for us as getting on the, spending an hour on the telephone in the evening after school with our friends when we were, you know, 14 years old. Um, we need to understand that our, and, and I don't actually like screen time very much myself. I'm not a huge fan of it. And there's a lot of crap out there that kids are being exposed to, but I, I'm going to beg parents to consider that not all screen time is created equal and to have a conversation with kids about what that screen time is being used for and to be a little more open-minded about the fact that it may be about social uh, stuff. It can be easier for kids with social anxiety to communicate online, um, that game time can be social time and bonding time with friends and, uh, and siblings, and to just have a greater understanding, have a more flexible understanding of screen time. Jessica, talk about, thank you. Talk about in the book, and this is the thing that I said, I, I disagreed with you mm -hmm. in, in your writing about, about quitting and losing. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and here's the thing, and, and my issue with it is a, is a bit where there's, there's kind of this gray area, right? Because mm -hmm. you're, what you say is, hey, we've got to let our, we have to make our kids struggle. That's, it's mm -hmm. a good thing. But then I think my, my question is, okay, but then you mentioned an introverted child. Mm -hmm. And well, but we got to understand that, hey, some kids are introverted. Yeah. But I guess my opinion is the way I look at it is, yeah, okay, but I mean, but they still have to struggle. So I see parents right. who might have an introverted child. They're 12 years old and the parent looks at the kid to say, hey, what do you want to eat? And then the parent mm -hmm. talks to the yeah. To the waitress yeah. and I'm on the and I'm thinking are you kidding me they're 12 and they can't talk to a, a waitress yet I, I think the common misconception is that I'm saying that kids get a pass for their personality type or whether they're introverted or that's not what I'm saying at all I'm saying okay. in order to help your kid learn the best way possible you have to understand what motivates your kid and you have to make those those learning moments relevant so okay. my answer to so I have a kid who's I, my younger kid was petrified of talking to adults mm -hmm. like he would prefer up until just recently if i would do that if i would order for him if i would talk to adults for him if i would mm -hmm. go into stores for him so uh a while back and i got to do a story about this for vermont public radio that was so much fun where we had a candy shop in our a chocolate shop in our town like a really quaint small town chocolate shop mm -hmm. and uh it has a little pull through in the front so uh you could live park in front of it um 
And so he, I would say, you know, you want to go to the chocolate shop? And he'd say, yeah, let's go to the chocolate shop. And we'd go to the chocolate shop and I would hand a $5 bill behind me. And he would look at me like with total terror in his eyes, like, wait a second, you're saying I have to go in and, and do this myself and talk to an adult. And he's like, oh no, I'm not doing that. And I'm like, well, I'm not going in. I'm not parking, like I'm live parked here. So if you want a chocolate, you can go in and get it yourself. And for a year, we would say, you want to go to the chocolate shop? Sure, let's go to the chocolate shop. I would pull up, I would hand the money back and he would decline to go in. And I'm like, okay, well, that's your choice, but I'm not going in with you. This is something, this was a low stakes opportunity for him to learn that it, he can do that thing. I don't yeah. care if he has chocolate or not. He cares more than I do, but I don't care if he has chocolate or not. After a year of doing this, I go, we go and get excited. I hand the $5 bill back. I feel him slip the $5 bill out of my hand. He goes in, yeah. he gets his chocolate. He comes back in the car. He gives me the change. And um, he so did not want to have a conversation with me about it because it wasn't as bad as he thought it was going to be. And then when that chocolate shop closed, I went and talked to the owner. I said, you know what, this, your chocolate shop means so much more to us than just a chocolate shop, because this is the, this was the place where my child learned that it's okay to talk to adults and that he in fact needs to learn how to self-advocate. And the woman who owned the shop just started to cry. She said, when I was little, the person who owned the, the candy store in my town was so mean, all of us were so afraid to go in there. And so my dream was to have a chocolate shop where kids could come in and feel like they could, they were welcome there. And how cool is that? it was the most amazing experience. And I, it's not like suddenly his social anxiety went away, yeah. but he became competent at that thing in that moment and realized that worrying about it was worse than actually doing it. It was a breakthrough moment and it was a low stakes breakthrough moment. And I'm not, so to go back to this, I'm not saying you get a pass. I, you know, part of being a part of my eighth grade class at um, the middle school where I taught was to give a graduation speech. You had to get up and say something in front of people. And parents were livid with me. Like my child is shy. This is too horrible yeah, for right. her, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but your child is going to have to speak in front of people eventually. And public speaking is one of the most important skills I can teach your kids, but even more so self advocacy is what is going to keep your child safe it is going to keep what's going to keep your kid getting what they need from adults in their life and asking for help so i am going to do what it takes i will be as patient as your child needs me to be but eventually your child is going to do some public speaking in my class and you know i used to have a much more hard line approach on that um, but understanding Susan Cain's book, Quiet, frankly, uh, Susan Cain, I was on Susan Cain's podcast talking about this very topic, class participation and the introverted versus the extroverted child. And I used to have a very hard line on this that I grade every kid on class participation. If you're not speaking up in my class, then you're not showing me that you learn stuff. And that's a very narrow view of what to participate in class means. And I've, mm -hmm. I've, broadened i learned i was i was a, my, a mediocre teacher and i've become a much better teacher based on what susan kane taught me and if i hadn't opened my mind to what susan was willing to teach me about things i didn't know about introverted kids i wouldn't be as good of a teacher as i have been allowed to become over the years by learning and doing better my students need to see that my children need to see that and that's part of what i do is is model that open being open to learning new things and doing better next time that story 
of with your child and handing him the $5 bill, it reminds me of a story that I had with James Dobson, who's the head strength and conditioning coach at Vanderbilt mm-hmm. football. Uh, when he, we had this conversation, when he was the head strength and conditioning coach at Nebraska football. He was talking about his son who played hockey and his mm-hmm. son had some, he was having some challenges in hockey mm-hmm. and he kept, he told his dad, dad, can you talk to the coach about this? Can you, and for a year, coach Dobson said, no, I'm not. You go talk to him. And he would practice with his son playing the coach saying, okay, tell me what you want to talk to me about. What are those things? Okay. Let's how we do this and worked with him and worked, but he refused mm-hmm. to go and talk to the coach for him. You talk to the coach. And eventually his son built up the confidence to go and do it. And the coach blew him off. Mm. And then coach Dobson got involved at that point. And when I read your book about be autonomy supporting parents, meaning give autonomy to your child, you're going to have to force them to do so at times to do so. You can't swoop in and, and, and save them. But that doesn't mean that you don't give them your love and support and listening to that, your story about your son at the chocolate factory reminded me of coach Dobson and his son Mm -hmm. playing hockey. And it highlights the, the, the importance to me of little kids, little issues, right? Big kids, big issues. Yes. And you can say to your kid, you know what, sweetie, I know how scared you are of talking to strangers. So why don't you pick a moment when you'd have to talk to strangers and have that be our goal? Like, I'll support you. I'm not going to say it has to be that stranger. It has to be this situation. Why don't you think for a little bit about um, maybe a, a small way to, to start doing that, that is scary for you, but not going to make you just fall apart. Asking kids to have a part in their learning, that's part of autonomy. So I'm automatically doing right by my kid and giving him more autonomy by saying, you know, why don't you pick the situation? It has to be talking to a stranger, but why don't you pick the situation? A friend of mine did another really clever thing. Her kids were also had a lot of social anxiety. So um, she created a scavenger hunt for them in the village, uh, the, the town that we one over from where uh, our kids grew up is a college town, super safe, really just people willing to help kids out at every turn. And so she created a scavenger hunt where it required them to talk to a lot of adults in order to acquire the things in the scavenger hunt. And it was it was a really amazing way to make a really scary thing more fun and engaging and rewarding for the kids. So why not have it be a fun, how, why not ask their their uh, opinion about how we all go about this in a way that makes yeah. everyone a little bit more comfortable rather than, um, sorry to mess with your earlier metaphor about the pool, rather than pushing them into the deep end of the pool, which is unfortunately what happened to my husband and like on a literal basis. And so he was afraid of swimming for years because yeah. instead of like easing him in, the teacher just got pissed off and pushed him in the deep end of the pool and he became, you know, really scared of swimming, but you know, giving kids, I love the little kids, little problems. That's fantastic. That's exactly right. Well, I'm glad you like that because you obviously hate every single metaphor I've used so far today. So I'm glad that I'm just co-opting your metaphors and turning them on their head, helping you perspective take from another angle. (laughs) Jessica, you know, and that's, and ultimately it's, it's why I really appreciate the time that I have with you here this morning and why I 
you know, whether it's politics, whether it's social injustice, whether it's so many things. And I think one of the, the best thing that we can do as just human beings is, look, what's the problem with disagreement? I mean, mm-hmm. like, I still want to have a conversation with you. If you disagree with me on a certain subject, mm-hmm. great. I'm not saying change my opinion. I'm saying, yeah. I'm saying, hey, I get a better understanding of this. It makes right. me a better person, right. Right? right? I think if we could all do that with so many yeah. things, I think we'd just be in such a better place for it. Now, yeah. that that piece, and I would just get, think of this to you as a suggestion. It's worked very well with my own children mm-hmm. and with the kids that I coach, young, young, you know, little guys, okay? And by little guys, I mean little, little guys and little girls at, at mm-hmm. their age, right, right, right. boys and girls are together, is with our own children, since they could since literally since they've been one years old when we meet people we shake hands with them when Mm -hmm. people come to our house our children have to get up and go shake hands with people and say Mm -hmm. hello Mm -hmm. coaching uh my son's athletic teams at the start of every practice the coaches and i line up we make every child line up shake Mm -hmm. our hands and say hi coach at the end of every practice they have to line up and they have to say thank you. And, and mm-hmm. we then thank them. Is, is eye contact part of it? I don't consider shaking hands to be, to not include eye contact. Okay. All right. But um, so yes, the answer is <laughs> yes. Some kids, some okay. kids will go through the motions of shaking the hands, but not do the eye contact. And I think the eye contact thing is so important. And let me highlight to you, Jessica, so is firmness in a handshake. I almost don't have to say it because, oh no, eye contact and firmness is part of the deal here because it's not a handshake if it isn't. So, but that piece of it, Jessica, you see some kids, they struggle mightily with doing it. Some kids- Oh, and can I interrupt for a second? Because there are, we are talking about neurotypical kids. Like I would never ask- a a kid with autism to shake my hand and make eye contact um, if it was something, because there are just, I I just want to make it really clear that what we're talking about is neurotypical kids here, because to say that a kid with autism must shake my hand and make make eye contact, eye contact is physically excruciating or, and mentally excruciating for some kids. I think it's, that's the thing about this whole teaching and coaching, not all kids are the same and, and using their strengths and weaknesses as we move forward understanding what those are, I think we have to keep our minds open at all times. I'm not saying that some kids get a pass because blah, blah, blah. I'm saying that, you know, generally speaking, what we're talking about is neurotypical kids. Uh, no argument here. I've, okay. uh, n- and none of the kids that uh, have played with us have parents right. told me that their kids have been autistic. The, yeah. um, but using the, the deep end of the swimming pool as, as an example, we worked with Indiana football. One of their quarterback, one of their quarterbacks had a near drowning experience. Yeah. And near drowning yeah. means you drowned and then somebody yeah, brought yeah. you back. Yeah. Right before we got there to go in the deep end of the swimming pool. Just like with them, like with all athletes, we don't push kids into the deep end of the pool. Right. We just say, I want to respect mm-hmm. you for just trying it. And yeah. they end up getting in anyway, right? Yep. With, the, with the shaking of the hands, what we've noticed and what parents have given me for feedback is, and I played college lacrosse, like, and we come from a very little town here in Northeastern Connecticut. The truth is what they're learning from a lacrosse perspective is much greater than what they would for another volunteer. Mm-hmm. Parents don't talk to me about, hey, you taught my kid how to pick up a great ground ball. Yeah. It's yeah. The, the feedback you get as a coach is, mm-hmm. Hey, you develop confidence in my son or mm-hmm. my daughter, like shaking of the hands. That's become the most important thing I do as a coach with, mm-hmm. with them. Because again, 
that idea of giving them confidence, self-efficacy, mm -hmm. they, they have autonomy from it. And I would just share that with our audience, uh, catapulting off of what Jessica says and the importance of that and being able to self-advocate. If we can do that at a very young age, then it doesn't mean that it guarantees a success, obviously, okay? But if we can address these issues at a younger age, little issues rather than big issues for... Mm -hmm. Now, let me, uh, let me ask you, uh, I want to, I want to highlight one. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm going to highlight one thing because I think it's vitally important. Something that we teach all the time. I loved reading about it in your book. And then I do want to finish with sports and quitting or mm -hmm. in, in your thoughts about that. And we'll wrap up. Okay, Jessica, okay. is that, is all that right. okay? Thank yeah. you. Okay. First in your book, you talk about in self, I'm sorry, autonomy, supporting parents versus controlling parents. Yeah. And when you talked about specifically, uh, I'd like you to talk about both and, and highlight mm -hmm. why autonomy supporting is so much better. We've been talking about so, all of those issues right, here. Right. Yeah, we should have defined our terms early on. <laughs> that we should be yeah, bad interviewer. Um, <laughs> is But then one step further is with autonomy supporting specifically and controlling a piece that I love that you wrote about was autonomy supporting parents. It doesn't mean permissive. It doesn't right. mean, hey, go do what you want. Right, and, right, right. and it doesn't mean, hey, you're just going to free range wherever you want right. to go, do whatever, be whoever. It actually means we need to have as a parent, as a teacher, as a coach, as a business leader, we need to provide structure for really our clear children. expectations. Yeah. Clear yeah. expectations. And there must be consequences that are enforced when those mm -hmm. expectations aren't met. And, and by the way, and I would go one step further, as I've seen myself in, in all the leadership positions I've been in, and I want to make sure I, I, I reiterate to our audiences, we must have consequences when those expectations aren't met. We must also remember to have benefits when those expectations are met. And mm -hmm. they don't have to be, hey, I'm going to give you a reward, but it has to be if we're going to recognize when expectations aren't met, we've got to also recognize when expectations are being met. But either way, this idea of expectations have very clear and communicated expectations, not a thousand rules. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We discuss all the time. And in, by fact, by having that, you get, you get, you're allowed and it's able to give your children much more autonomy. Please start with explaining <laughs> self, uh, I'm sorry, autonomy supporting versus controlling, why autonomy supporting is better, although we have mentioned it right. a lot. And then this idea of clear expectations and the importance for all of us as leaders to have them. So uh, the work on, the work I often cite on autonomy supportive versus controlling or directive is another great way to think about it because it really is about parents who give too many directions who are highly directive. Um, comes from a, a woman named Wendy Grulnick. Um, there are a couple of books on the bibliography I mentioned at jessicalahey.com that, uh, that talk about this, but essentially, her research is pretty clear that is very clear that when you when you have ki kids of parents who allow the kids to make some decisions about how they do a project, where they do a project, when what order they do a task, those kids are uh, that are allowed to have wrestle a little bit with when they get frustrated as opposed to parents who step right in and fix the problem or tell the kid what to do next like those sort of 
before you even have a chance to get frustrated, the parent is right there with the next thing that you're supposed to do. And I say parent, but this could be coach or teacher or whatever. Mm -hmm. So autonomy supportive parents give kids choices. They let kids um, sort of come up with their own strategies. They do not step in the second a kid gets frustrated. They're encouraging the kid to read the instructions again, to think about it a different way, maybe skip that, pro that math problem and go on to the next one and then come back to it. That allows kids to have a certain amount of um, familiarity and comfort with that horrible feeling of frustration, right? That thing that we hate to see our kids struggle with. Um, so autonomy supportive parents, that's the attributes their kids tend to have, that sort of feeling of being able to be a little frustrated and, and that feeling that they're probably going to be able to go through and, and, and finish it on their own. Controlling or directive parents tend to be right there with the next instruction before the kid even needs it or right on top of the kid or telling the kid how to do it. And it's really ineffective for a couple of reasons because if you bring those kids into a lab and you give them a task and you make that task slightly frustrating for them and you take the parents out of the equation, you get rid of the parents don't let them be in the room. The kids who have the autonomy supportive parents are a lot more likely, a lot more likely to complete that task on their own. Whereas the kids of the directive or the controlling parents are a lot more likely to get frustrated and give up the moment they feel frustration. Mm -hmm. So that's important to me because one of the most powerful tools I have in my teaching toolkit is something called desirable difficulties. And this, uh, if you want to read more about desirable difficulties, go read a book called Make It Stick. It's three authors. It's from Harvard University Press. Desirable difficulties are when a task is slightly difficult to understand, to parse, to figure out, um, to get into and sort of take apart and figure out that that task will lend to much deeper learning. When we learn something because someone just hands us the steps, it goes into like, um, here's the quadratic formula, just follow these steps, don't think about the why, just do it this way. That tends to go into short-term memory. When we have a problem that is, here's the quadratic formula, you have all the tools to figure this out on your own, go sit in some groups or figure it out on your own, that child is going to have a much deeper understanding of how the quadratic formula works and is going to retain it for much longer because it's being what's called encoded. Um, encoding is a process in our brain that passes right by short-term uh, memory and takes it into long-term memory. So when we are present, if you think about if this is such a strong learning tool, desirable difficulties, and you think about who's going to benefit from desirable difficulties, it is not going to be the kid who has had the directive parent, teachers, and coaches who is used to just doing what they're told and is not comfortable with being frustrated and is more likely to give up given a frustrating task. That kid is just not going to learn as well in my class. Classroom. It is going to be harder for me to teach that kid. Um, there's a book that I rave about constantly um, called The Self-Driven Child by William Stixrude and Ned Johnson. The Self-Driven Child is about, it's a brilliant book because it's about giving your child more sense of control over their lives in order to produce kids, in order to help foster kids that are grow kids that are going to be more capable of learning over their lifetime. So that's why autonomy support is so important. And in a little kid, it can be as simple as, you know, sweetie, it's cold outside. Do you want to wear the red hat or the blue hat? Like we don't, if you say, do you want to wear a hat? 
a toddler is just going to say no, right? So we give them some sense of control or some sense of autonomy over the uh, the choice so that we get more buy-in. And that works with athletes and that works with students and that works with, you know, all any kid you're working with, any human being you're working with. The, think about in our jobs, if you had someone micromanaging you every single second in your job, you're going to feel resentment. You're going to not feel trusted. You're going to not like your job very much. And your motivation is going to flag. But if you have someone who gives you the parameters of a work product and says, you know, I trust you, you know, if you need help, come see me, but I'd love, this is what I would sort of love to see at the end. But if you come up with an even better project, that would be prog, uh, products, that would be great. Um, that autonomy supporting behavior is what lends kids to be able to learn better. Um, and that's why I care so much about it. It, in, in part of that, thank you. And part of that, which, which I've noticed myself is as rather than being directive is or controlling, I noticed it on Halloween. On Halloween, we had a Halloween party here at our house and a bunch of families and their kids came over. And uh, my son and three other boys, three of his buddies, they went outside to play football. And I went outside and sat on the porch and watched them. And Jessica, I still don't know what the rules are that they were playing under because it wasn't football rules. Like why a quarterback could scramble one on one play, but couldn't on, I still don't know. And I've got to be honest with you. If you asked all four boys to write down when they could or couldn't, I don't think they could do it right now. And the amount of complaining they did at each other and moaning and everything. And, and I just sat there. And this is after reading your book, you're getting back to how it changed me as a parent. And there were times where they turned to me, they knew I was on the porch watching them. And they said, Hey, daddy, or Axel would say, Hey, daddy, what about this? And I said, Hey, hey Ax, just you guys figure it out. Yeah, like you, you figure it out. And you know what, they played two and a half hours of football on Halloween. And the reason why they played two and a half hours and not 30 minutes was because I wasn't out there directing them and controlling what was going on out there. It's tough though. Oh man, yeah. was it tough to just now, sit get, there. Interestingly enough, the fastest way uh, that if you had wanted to stop their football playing, <laughs> yeah, even faster, even faster than saying kids come in, it's time to stop playing football would have been, hey kids, let's play according to my rules now. If you want to get a kid to stop playing Legos, if you want to get a kid to just start imposing your will on them and their interest in doing that thing. I mean, it's the reason that Minecraft is as popular as it is because a kid can controls an entire universe. So I got to go to Northern Ireland when, um, when they were releasing Minecraft into schools and using it as a learning tool in schools. And I was really interested to see how this was work would work because the very appeal of Minecraft is a total autonomy situation for the kid. The minute we start, we as adults start putting parameters on what does and doesn't happen in Minecraft is the moment the kid's like, eh, maybe I'll play something else because that autonomy and what the, your kids were experiencing was intrinsic motivation and dare I say it, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's Mihai's flow state. That's why they played for two and a half hours. And, and Jessica, you, you also mentioned in your book that when you talk about controlling and saying, well, hey, you've got to do this or do, and, and people right. were always stepping in rather than being autonomy supporting is in schools that say, hey, as teachers, I'm not going to figure out every single one of your, I'm going to stand here, make sure nobody gets hurt. But outside of that, I'm just going to stand here. Now, you guys have to behave in this, right? Getting back to structure and, and, mm -hmm. and those things. 
in that in those environments, the bullying has gone down mm-hmm. in those environments when yeah. there's less control, as you highlighted in your book. It was really interesting. There's, there's actually the, the research mostly that comes out of Australia and New Zealand because they have they have liability. The laws there make it so that you can't sue schools. They have uh, schools are exempt from liability on certain things. And so they're able to mess around and say, OK, well, what would happen if we took all the rules away at recess? And it turns out it did lead to a lower levels of bullying. It um, The kids were just it, it led to all kinds of great outcomes. I wrote an article about that for the Atlantic and, and they, we can't do that here though, because of our liability laws and our, our uh, jumping very quickly to suing if someone breaks their arm because someone wasn't watching the kid on the swing the entire time. And by the yeah, way, that's and- not a hypothetical. My kid broke his arm because he was on the swing and he and his friend were doing dangerous things on the swing and he broke his arm. But that's because my kid was being a bonehead about what he was doing on the Je- swing, not because no one was watching him. Jessica, and that's my point. Too. I'm glad. Thank, thank you for saying it. Is is that that's not the school's issue for not watching your kid? Like, it's not. Like, I mean, it's it's the kid's fault. So just tell the kid it's his fault, right? Like, I mean, come on, let's move on here. But I, I mean, meaning, meaning from was, the whole suing thing, right. you know, is what I mean yeah. by moving on. I yeah. didn't have to. I didn't have to tell him it was his fault. He was like, oh, he's my got God, a broken arm. Such a bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, unlike unlike my kid who has a broken leg because I decided to get on the trampoline with him. That really was my <laughs> fault. But anyway, the the um on that uh what taking that one step further and then I and then I promise we're going to get to the two issues that I'd like to talk to you about that I disagree and I'm going to give you the last word on both and we'll wrap up. Is this Wayne Gretzky has a very famous interview uh about the, when you talk about overscheduling or always mm-hmm. having your without free play and then parents who get involved. Yeah. He talks about the fact that, yeah, he's the greatest hockey player. He doesn't use these terms. I'm using this term. He's the greatest hockey player of all time. He's used to play pond hockey. Not yeah. everything was, Hey kid, do it this way. You right. have to do it this way. He's the one, I mean, nowadays in, in the NHL, yeah, everybody has a guy who goes behind the net and they run their offense from behind the net. Yeah, but he's the one who revolutionized it. And before him, everybody would have said if he was overscheduled, always in, rather than just outplaying with the other kids, was, no, you can't do it that way. You can't do He became the greatest of all time by doing it because of pond hockey. And well, and a lot is, of people would say he did, you know, he, one of the other factors is, oh, his dad was so driven, da, da, da. Yeah, his dad built a rink for him out in the back and stuff like that. But his dad was supportive of what he wanted to do. Yeah. Wayne Gretzky wouldn't have been Wayne Gretzky if he wasn't intrinsically motivated to be a great hockey player. Wayne Gretzky talks about the fact of having conversations with his dad after the after games. And his dad was never like, oh, you didn't play well. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. He, he, like, so hundred absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, two points. I'm going to say okay. what I believe, and then I'm going to give you the final word on them. Okay. All Number right. one, participation trophies. I have no issue, contrary to what most mm-hmm. people believe when they just see me in the square mm-hmm. jaw and the shaved head and all this stuff mm-hmm. is, he must hate participation trophies. Mm-hmm. I've competed in hundreds of races, Jessica. Mm-hmm. Eight Ironmans marathon i've lost track of the marathons that i've done Mm -hmm. and at every one of them i cross the finish line and somebody puts a medal around my neck for Mm -hmm. participating for finishing Mm -hmm. we have no problem so many people nowadays have no problem with that they finish their 10k race Mm -hmm. great yep put the medal around my waist and i'm gonna wear it all day but don't you ever give my kid a participation trophy Mm -hmm. 
My piece is I have no, I, no issue with participation trophies so long as when you're providing that participation trophy, you explain and you communicate what that recognition is for. For me personally, participating is 80% of getting there. It's a huge deal. You got to get in the arena. All of us do. It's mm-hmm. vitally important. And then to get in the arena again and again and again, I, I want to recognize it. I have no issue at all with participation trophies. I quite honestly think they're good. My mm-hmm. issue is when we take it a step further and we are not going to recognize the MVP. That mm-hmm. is my problem. Okay. And I turn? read, I'm not saying you disagree <laughs> with me. What I read in the gift of failure is uh-huh. you disagree with participation trophies. Tell me why. You- you are well. You are incorrect. Um, so I not the first time. <laughs> so you value, and by the way, I run. I used to run half marathons, and the, my medals for running those half marathons. I, you know, and I don't keep stuff. Like I am just not a sentimental type of person. Like I just don't keep stuff. Mm. I actually don't know that I have all my medals, but I keep all of my numbers. Um, I, I just always keep my numbers. Um, I am very, very proud of those things because. I was intrinsically motivated to do that race. I didn't say I am going to run a half marathon because I want the medal, right? So for uh, for the for you doing those races, the medal was a nice commemorative thing you received at the end of something that was intrinsically you were intrinsically driven to do. You were already doing it for intrinsic reasons, right? Mm-hmm. With children, Often the reason they are doing the thing that we give them our participation trophy for is because we want them to do it, not necessarily because they want to do it. And then we offer them a reward for putting up with all of our crap about making them go. Okay, do you see the difference? So the difference for me is, and then and then go to a kid's house who has been forced to do, you know, and and I'm not saying always forced, but like, you know, the difference between a kid who's doing a sport because they love it. And a kid who's doing a sport because other people want them to do it. The kid who's doing a sport because other people want them to do it. Those participation trophies are the first things that tend to go get stepped on, on the floor, end up in the bag to go to Goodwill because for a kid, they know the difference between an earned reward and an unearned reward. They just do. Kids are so much smarter than we give them than we give them credit for. So kids who are given unearned rewards know they're trash. Know they're not worth the amount of money that we paid for them. Okay, and just because we can't reward someone into being intrinsically motivated. We just can't do it. I can't pay kids enough to care about math. I can't give kids enough trophy to want to be a really good soccer player. I can encourage their soccer playing. I can find the things in it that they love and encourage those things. And I'm not saying we shouldn't ever give participation trophies. I'm just saying if we understand the difference between the thing, the, the, my race number and your um, marathon medallion and a participation participation trophy, those are apples and oranges because you're already intrinsically motivated to earn that thing. The kid may or may not be intrinsically motivated to earn that thing. 
I totally agree in MVP trophies because it is more likely a kid who is an MVP is more likely to be intrinsically motivated to do the sport in the first place. And that MVP trophy will have real meaning for that kid. Do you see the difference for me anyway? 100%. That's where I am. Now, let me, so then as you're talking, what I'm thinking about is, okay, so my child is that child, your friend, the daughter of your friend who knees are knocking when yeah, she's yeah. got a bat in her hand and she's right. going to go swing the bat in three times as right. quickly as she can. So she can strike out and go back to the dugout, right. but that's real growth for her. And, right. and I would, and then I would give her, then give her a trophy for that. So if I'm a parent and at the end of the season, that team gets participation trophies and that girl, my daughter comes and sits in the car and I say to her, I want to recognize what that trophy yes. means that this is why I'm, that's what you would suggest. Except she would then turn to you and say, well, how could it mean that everyone got one? And I guess my next answer would be, and for some people, it might mean something completely different. But well, but Madison for, for hates us, soccer and her parents forced her to go every time and she sat down and refused to play and she got a participation trophy. Well, now you're getting into one of the things that we talk to our kids about all the time, which is let's make sure that we stay focused on that yeah, which yeah, we can control, yeah. not the, right, what we right. can't control. Uh, yes. So if we yeah. want to have a conversation about Madison and that, well, yes. let's have a conversation about that. Yeah. But right now we're having a conversation about right. you and your participation here. But all I, all I meant was if you're going to hold that trophy up as a, as a um, something that represents her perseverance and her courage, she is 100, she is a very, in my opinion, a very smart child if she turns around and says to you, but, but everybody got one. So how could it mean that thing that, how could it mean that I was brave because not everybody was brave and everybody got one. And so I, I just, I'm just holding it up as a what if, because mm -hmm. I think, I think that the way we communicate with kids has to be from a place of they, they know when we're being dishonest. They know when we're yes. being disingenuous. 100%. They know when we're blowing smoke up their butts. And I just want to make sure that we understand that kids are smarter than we give them credit for. And spin isn't always going to be the answer to your Hun question. And, and Jessica, you know, and as I gave it more thought here, as you were talking, which is the worst thing that uh, somebody should do, right? I mean, no, that's they, what people he, should he, do. We're having a conversation. Yeah, but what I, we should, what I mean by that is and what the thing that we teach all the time is and believe me, me, I do it all the time, which is we listen to respond rather than listen to understand. Yeah, and listening okay. to understand right. means let me actually pay attention to what yeah. you're saying rather than thinking Thank about what you. my yes. response to you is going to be. Yeah. So is, is this, uh, as I think more about it, if she says, yeah, but dad, that doesn't mean that to me. I mean, everybody got a trophy and everybody this. And I would say, I, I, what I think I would say then is then throw it away. If yeah. it doesn't mean anything exactly. to you, yes. go throw it away. But let me here's, just here's but, what the value is for the or ask her what is the value of the that, that's right and if it has no yeah, value exactly. to you, for right. you go throw right. it away but let me tell you from me that I'm so proud of you for doing that I'm, and I'm thinking about the girl and this this mother's probably like right now got a nervous twitch as she listens to this next month being like oh my god thank god this guy isn't the husband of my daughter right but <laughs> is is saying that for my daughter whose knees are knocking but she stuck with it and, and did it and at, she's proud of herself for right. that. And she's right. proud of what the medal represents. I want to give her, and I'm okay with teams and coaches presenting those. And if my kid doesn't feel that way about it, go throw it away. I don't yeah. care. 
But yeah. for those kids who are participating in sports, and nowadays it's even more important with all this BS, my kid's going to play one sport all the time from mm -hmm. the age of five until yeah. they're 35. Right. But now we've got kids trying new sports. They may not be good at that. And boy, just getting out there and doing it and learning and putting themselves out there. And they got a, an award for that. And they feel good about it. As a parent, I, I'm so excited about it. Now, I don't care if half the kids throw their awards away as they leave the field. But for those kids who don't, I do want them to bring go home and, and mm -hmm. be proud of it, I guess. Yeah. I, yeah. My thought. Yeah. The, the, yeah. We're in agreement. We're in agreement. See, I said I'd give you the last word on it, and in there, I, I, I didn't yeah. at all. Okay, no, now, fi final, final, final question. Okay. In your book, and in, in you're probably, I, um, you've got me nervous now. Okay, okay. Jessica. All right. Um, eight Didn't years as to, a, okay. Eight years as a, you know, Naval Academy grad, infantry yep. officer, special operations, climb Mount Everest, and you've got me more nervous now about asking this next question because you're gonna is this quitting. Yeah. You talk about in the book and you say, I'm not going to say what you said. You're going to be able to say okay. what you said. I'm going to say right. what I think. This, yeah. If you sign up for something, if you sign up for it. Now, I want to also highlight, I have a conversation with my son, Axel, mm -hmm. this winter, you can wrestle, box, play basketball, mm -hmm. play yeah. hockey. Those are the, those are your options in our area. Mm -hmm. you are going to do one of them. We right. do something every season. Yep. And he says, dad, I want to do boxing. Yep. Okay. I'm going to sign you up to do boxing. I sign him up to box, but, right. but I know boxing is an individual sport. So my analogy isn't going to work. So let me use football instead okay. because okay. he loves football. Right, right, right. Okay. I'm going to sign you up to play football. You it's your choice. You're going to play football. Right. Then at some point he decides Dad, I don't want to play any more football during the season. Yeah. I am going to tell him, okay, next year you don't have to play football. Yeah. But you're going to finish this season out. Okay. When I read your book, the feeling that I get from it is, look, don't force your kid to do so play a sport that they don't like to do or have them continue to do it. It, it that that backfires let them and understand that there's a difference between quitting and just, well, persevere, struggling for the sake of, well, I'm just going to keep struggling. Mm -hmm. Talk to me and our audience about how your viewpoint on quitting and how we should. This is actually one of the most complicated questions I get. Um, and I also love this question. So some of this comes down to family priorities, okay? So every family's different. Every family has different priorities. Your family definitely has sports priorities. In my family, sports is not so much a priority. Um, when my kids were younger, um, I heard the research on, you know, music and um, playing piano and math, that if a kid can play music, that they're gonna be better at math. So I'm like, great, we're gonna get a piano down in our house and my kids are gonna take piano lessons because that'll make them better at math. And so we start my, you know, there's always a honeymoon period with any new thing. So it was fine for like two weeks. And then my older son and I start just going to battle over practicing the piano, just battling. And in my home with my kids, that connection piece, our relationship um, is going to, 
once something that we're arguing about, um, like whether or not to play piano, given that we're not a highly musical family, music is not a huge priority in our family. Um, in the end, I'm never gonna say I was a great parent because I forced my kid to play piano for 12 years or whatever. Um, I knew that my relationship with my kid was gonna be more important to me than fighting every single day about the piano. So I, we talked about it and I said, if you are really done playing piano, I'm gonna give the piano away because the people downhill, thank goodness they were downhill. The people downhill from us would like the piano and then those suckers can have the same argument that we have every day. So we got rid of the piano. About a year later, my son picked up guitar totally under his own power because my husband has a guitar and he plays occasionally and it was around the house. He starts playing guitar. We learned something really interesting about my son, which is he hates one-on-one -on -one individual lessons, hates it. I didn't know that was what part of the problem was. We had to sort of go through that experience to find that out. But these days, uh, you can learn how to play uh, guitar uh, through this program called Jam Play. You can use YouTube. They're like Jam Play is like 100 bucks a year, and you can get um, you can learn from all different styles of instructor, all different styles of music. He is a very self-driven child. He wanted to learn how to play piano or learn how to play guitar himself. He is such a great guitar player now. And about a year into it, he also came to me and he said, "Mom." Um, okay, I'm gonna say this thing and you cannot tease me for it, but if you were to hear about a used keyboard, I would love to try to teach myself piano. So luckily I was able to locate a used keyboard, not a full piano, thank goodness. And uh, he taught himself piano and still plays piano and still plays guitar. And if I had, that was because for my kid that I happen to now know is an incredibly self driven child, that is the way he prefers to learn. Mm -hmm. That would not have happened, I think, I can't know for sure, if I had forced the piano on him every single day. Now I hear from parents all the time who are like, oh, I so wish my parents had forced me to play piano rather than letting me quit because now as an adult, I would know how to play piano, which may be true, but what would your relationship with the piano be like? What would your relationship with the, you know, I don't know, but that comes down to priorities. I also have a friend, my friend, Sarah, she, her rule in her house, like yours is everyone will play an instrument. I don't care what instrument it is, but you will play an instrument. So, you know, if you want to switch it up at any given time and start from scratch with a new instrument, fine with me. But the rule in our house is everyone will play an instrument. And that is acknowledged as a family priority in our house. Our priorities have to do with relationships. Our priorities have to do with sleep. Our priorities have to do with finding the things that we are passionate about. And my belief is childhood is a time when kids should be allowed to try a lot of different things. And unfortunately, we're in a period right now where early specialization is the rule as opposed to the exception. And yep. so it's, it's an unfortunate for a couple of reasons. My kid who, my, one of my kids is not a sports kid and it would be very difficult for him to start playing a sport now, which is, I so is. wish there was an opportunity for him in high school, sometimes like freshman year of high school, you could try something new, but you're definitely not going to get on the soccer team. That's for sure. So thank goodness for club sports and in, in college, thank good, you know, that kind of stuff is great. But if kids aren't allowed 
let's say your kid, um, I had a girl recently who begged me to tell her parents to let her quit swimming. And, and I asked why. And she said, well, I've been doing it since I was like five. My parents say we have so much invested in swimming that we can't give up now. This is going to be the thing on my college transcript that gets me into a college or my high school transcript that gets me into a college. And I hate swimming. I hate everything about it. I hate getting up for it every morning. What I really would like to do is, and I don't remember what her thing was, it could have been glass blowing. I don't know. But childhood is a time when you're supposed to be allowed to try a lot of different things. My kids haven't been um, excessively scheduled so that when my kid decided to try welding, true story, he was able to go take welding lessons. Um, when he wanted to try, uh, you know, there's all kinds of cool things that my kids have been able to try because I don't know about you, but how can you know if you are going to fall in love with something if you haven't tried it? So let's say your kid signs up for football and you now in your mindset that you're, they're committed for the whole season. And there is merit in that too. I absolutely say teammates depend on you. This is a team endeavor. You can't just walk away from that because yeah. you're letting other people down. But at the same time, I don't know about you, but I had to try cross-country running before I realized I loved it. And I had to try, I don't know, basketball before I realized that I really didn't enjoy it. And luckily I had parents who were highly encouraging of, okay, that wasn't for you, what's next? Because there's gonna be a next. You don't get to just sort of do nothing. But in my family with our given priorities, um, I would prefer that my child try something new that may be their next thing that they love than be forced to do something they hate because of an arbitrary commitment, um, especially if it's an individual thing that, that I've sort of put on them. But your perspective, totally valid, absolutely 100% valid because that's the priority in your family. In every the family, it's going to be slightly different. You know, it, it's it's funny because you use the piano or the guitar, and and that's why I didn't use boxing as my example. I used right, football right, right. because yeah. he quits. He he decides. Hey, piano's not for me. I'm gonna do mm -hmm. I would do something else. That doesn't affect individual, other right? Right. Yeah, right. that doesn't affect other people. And I totally get that. Football, soccer. He's got his town team. There's a certain number of kids. If those kids don't show up, they right. don't. The other kids don't play a game. Right. And. We've said, you've said you're the one who wants to try this. Mm -hmm. We don't have to do it. And your point, by the way, and, and I'll, I'll get to this here in a second, but you don't have to continue to do it for the next 30 years of your life, right. 100%. Right. But if you stop, those other kids may not be able to play on Saturday. Right. And, and you're talking about a season. You're talking about three months. And that's not a long time. In fact, if you look at the, if you look at the research on habit building, on habit formation, it takes an entire season, three months to build habits. So if you're, you know, there are all sorts of reasons to stick with something for three months and, and the team aspect is really great. But at the same time, have that be a part of your explanation, not just because I said so, but because yeah. there are people depending yeah, on you. Yeah, that's important. And the yeah. other great thing, uh, a friend of mine, uh, actually the family that has the kids who all do hockey, there was a kid who said, um, he was a kid said, I really, really, really want to play baseball. 
And the mom sat down, the mom and dad and all the kids, they sort of sat down together and she said, let's look at your schedule and let's look at the baseball schedule and let's be realistic about what's going to fit and what's not going to fit and the things you're going to have to give up. Okay. So what are your goals for this spring? And the kid had goals like spend more time with my friend, blah, blah, blah. Once the weather gets nice and da, da, da. And the mom was able to say, well, if you're playing baseball, you're not going to be able to do these other things. So the kid needs to be treated maturely with enough maturity so that they can say, oh, there are pros and cons. It's not just this fly-by-night idea I have that it would be fun to play baseball. Involve your kid in the decision-making process around the initial commitment so that it means something later on. And it can be a learning uh, learning opportunity later on. With that, and as we we talk about, and you brought up a couple of points here, is that the that you mentioned the daughter who's like, I'm, I hate swimming. I'm, I don't like Jessica. I can't even tell you how often that that occurs in athletes. I played with them in college guys who were playing college lacrosse who are like, I hate this. I hate practice. I hate coming here, but I'm, I do it because, well, and uh, I think parents have to realize what you're doing is that to, to, they will, many of them get to the point before they even get to college of, I hate this. Yep. Number one, number two, that doesn't even include all of the overuse injuries that we see because kids play the same sport all year round in the same repetitive injuries that mm-hmm. used to be for, for, you know, 19, 20, 21, 22 and older ages occurring now at kids who are six and seven because they play soccer all year long. But now with that though, Jessica, and this gets back to the idea of, having that conversation with your child is ultimately as a parent, there are things that I know better than my child. That's my belief. Okay. Your experience, your lived experience. Absolutely. That's right. Okay. And to me, I know that with, with, with things that I do for the first time, Mm -hmm. I don't like it if I'm not good at it. Right. So my feeling is, is that a child tries something once, twice, and goes, and now look, and I agree with you, this is mm-hmm. the problem with sports specialization. It doesn't only hurt your, your kid from the overuse and eventually just the hatred of doing that sport. Mm-hmm. And also the idea of, well, he doesn't meet other teammates. He doesn't, mm-hmm. he or she doesn't, but it also hurts my kid because now if my, your kid who plays that same sport 12 months a year, they are going to be better than the same kid who like me played three different sports my whole life, you know, every a different mm-hmm. sport a season. But as a parent, I'm telling my son, and again, my daughter's three and a half, but so, and I'll tell her the same thing, which is, look, you've been there and done it once, twice. We made a commitment. You said you wanted to do this. It's going to hurt the other teams if you, if you stop. And when you get to the end of the season, if at that point you've tried it enough, you've got some level of proficiency, and then you say, right. I don't like it. Okay, well, let's move on. Right. But to just allow a child to say, well, I don't like it, so I'm going to quit. That doesn't Mm -hmm. make sense to me because they would Mm -hmm. be quitting a lot of stuff because we're not good at anything the first time we do it. Well, a lot of things in life we don't. But look, but all of the things that we do in our lives, we tried for the first time once and the things we stuck with are the things, you know, the things that we we were sort of attracted to, sometimes it has to do with natural talent, but sometimes it just has to do with 
an initial enjoyment of the thing. And we are going to be far happier and I think far better at those things if we um, continue with the things that we enjoy instead of continuing with the things that we don't enjoy. But at the same time, I'm totally with you on the on the concept of, you know, you make a commitment, you follow through. I'm with you on the, you know, playing piano sucks until you can actually play your first song. So at the beginning, it's just really not fun. But there's a reason that there are that people fall in love with certain activities. And there's a reason that people hate certain activities. And I, I think if we're gonna treat our children as human beings and have some respect for their likes and dislikes, you know, at a certain point, and to me, obviously, a big part of this argument is what are you foregoing? What experiences might you not have if you're remaining committed to this thing that you hate? And like I said, and it all comes down to priorities and I have absolute respect absolute respect for the parents that say, if you join this team, if you say this at the get-go, if you join this team, it is a team sport. You are in it for the rest of the season because your teammates will depend on you and there is no quitting before it's over. I have total respect for that. I'm not saying you can't, you, you know, that you should let a kid quit in that scenario. I'm just saying, I would love it if we were thinking more about the fact that childhood is supposed to be a time of experimentation um, yes. and, and be mindful of the things we, that kids don't get it. And including the downtime, frankly, that's mm -hmm. why I hate overscheduling so much is that, and one of the benefits, I hate to say this, one of the benefits of COVID is suddenly the kids aren't overscheduled. And I'm hearing from so many kids who are discovering things that they really think are cool that they never had time to do before. And that's pretty cool. I'm hearing from a lot of kids who are telling me that. In fact, my kid said at the beginning when school first uh, went virtual last year, and you know, like I said, he does online music uh, production, and he set a whole bunch of uh, goals for himself since he wasn't spending as much time on the schoolwork, you know, and going back and forth. He actually said, "Now I can. Now that I don't have to worry about school, I can get so much more work done." That's the kid who's intrinsically motivated to do something that he loves and that we can't force them into. And, and again, I'm coming at this whole quitting things from that perspective of we can't coerce kids into loving something and we can't coerce kids into being really passionate, really intrinsically motivated to do something. We just can't. Jessica Leahy's second book, The Addiction <laughs> Inoculation. <laughs> Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence will be released in April 2021. Yep. Please check out, buy it today, <laughs> The Gift of Failure. There's a lot of, for the sports thing, by the way, there is some really cool research on the protective benefits of sports, on the sports that are most vulnerable to substance abuse and how we actually reach those kids and how we prevent substance abuse in sports. I, that part of the research was fascinating to me. So there's definitely some stuff that applies to uh, the power of coaches and especially team captains to sway team behavior. Jessica, if I promise you that I'm not going to use any analogies in our next conversation, <laughs> I'd love for you to promise that you'll come on and talk about right. the addiction inoculation. Uh, that would be fantastic. I would love that because, <laughs> because when you look at uh, substance abuse um, sports, there is a lot to talk about with sports. There is a lot to talk about. And I am an pro and con and 
protective and harmful. And I am so excited to talk about all of it. In closing, Jessica, you mentioned earlier and wrote about Tim Harford, author mm -hmm. of the book Adapt, Why Success book. Always Starts with Failure. Tim writes, biologists have a word for the way in which solutions emerge from failure, evolution. Yeah. When viewed in that light, the proper reaction to failure is not to deny that it exists or to kill the messenger, but to evolve in response to it. Teammates, there is no true thing in life as just maintaining. We evolve, we grow, or we die. Failure affords us the opportunity to evolve, to grow. It affords us the opportunity to become the best teammates and the best team leaders that we can be for all the teams with whom we are privileged to be a part. Jessica, thank you so much for sharing with us what we can do to ensure it. Absolutely, this has been so much fun. For our listeners, to sign up for our monthly letter on leadership and to learn more about the program and our leadership development and team building services for your own team, go to theprogram.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at theprogram.org and on Facebook at theprogram.org and at we do one more and on LinkedIn at linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash the hyphen program hyphen LLC. Be a great teammate and great team leaders on all the teams of which we are privileged to be a part. Until the next time, thank you and attack. <laughs>